Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Rhymes. And I'm uh, Manny Manuel. It's a big one today. We're talking yep. about the 1991 Best Picture winner. Yes, sir. Silence of the Lambs. It is the 11th film in 1991 that we're going to be talking about. Yep, yep. And further to that, it is not Beauty and the Beast. Yes. As which... aforementioned in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened there? Scheduling conflicts as uh, my co-host Samuel was a busy boy. Mm-hmm. And because we have a guest coming on for Beauty and the Beast, uh, the days that uh, you were gone on your little excursion and... Uh, your recording session mm-hmm. uh sadly i shouldn't say sadly just didn't align with uh, our guest schedule yeah. so we had to flip um our usual tradition of ending the miniseries with the best picture winner but that's okay yeah Maybe so make an exception yeah this one time i just won't let it happen again won't let my my personal life get in the way of what's really important yeah this fucking podcast. This fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, music is fleeting, but podcasting is forever. It's forever. Don't forget that. <laughs> it's on the internet, so it'll be there forever now. Yep. I often wonder about all the terrible jokes we've made on this podcast. Mostly me. I wonder like, if we said anything especially terrible. Like terrible as in like that could get us canceled? I don't know. Or just you know, bad, like or, or just, just bad like, jokes. I mean, a little column A, a little column B. I don't think we've we've I don't think we've ever said anything that would actually get us in trouble. Yeah, and I've never told a joke that doesn't land, so I'm probably worrying about nothing. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. See, you like that one. Um, yeah. So, Beauty and the Beast uh, getting shoved to next week. Yep. Today, talking about a um, another movie about a uh, young, uh, pale woman pursuing a beast. Nice. Just in a different way. Okay. Different different sort of thing. Nice. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we do want to apologize if you are looking forward to Beauty and the Beast. That will be coming next week with a special guest. Until then, Sam, what have you been watching? Manny, I told you off air I wanted to talk about two movies. I, I want to talk about three. I got three I want to talk about. Three, Jesus um, Christ. We are in the midst of award season. Yeah. And thankfully, I thought I missed my opportunity, but Tar came back. To Kamloops, uh, or maybe it didn't come back. Maybe it never left. I don't know. No, it but, definitely came back. Yeah. Okay. So it came back to Kamloops after I thought it left. So thankfully, I did wind up getting a chance to go see it. I'm very excited to talk about this. Uh, here, let me see if I can pull up the synopsis. Set in the international world of Western classical music, the film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered to be one of the greatest living composer conductors and the very first female director of a major German orchestra. So this, go ahead, Manny. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I know that you go into movies pretty blind. You went into Tar basically because it's a Best Picture uh, nominee. Did you happen to see the trailer for Tar? I didn't. So later on, I went to see a movie at the same theater that you did, which I'll get into when we get to mine. And they played a trailer for Tar. I'd never seen one. Sam, you should watch the trailer for Tar. Yeah? It makes Tar... It makes you think that Tar is a horror movie. Cool. Like a thriller horror movie. (laughs) And I'm watching it with three people that have never seen Tar as we're getting ready to watch the movie we were there for. And they're all looking at it, and I'm going like, this is bad marketing. Hmm. 
or is it? I don't I don't know. But anyways, I just I was very curious. I highly recommend watching the trailer for Tar after watching the movie Tar to be like what the fuck? Yeah, I will. I'll try to keep it spoiler free, given that it's you know award season. It's a new movie, and you know no spoiler warnings really in this section. I'll definitely say there are aspects of this film that include horror elements. Like yes. I can, I can just finding out now that the trailer markets it as a horror movie. I can think of a few of the moments they probably put in the trailer. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of like the dog. Yep. That, like the dog. Yep. Or um. There's a scene in an airplane bathroom. Yes. Like right at the very beginning. Yeah, that probably went in there. And the uh, the the, the metronome? The metronome, absolutely. Yep, that's in Uh, the trailer. (laughs) Yeah, so I can totally see how it was marketed as such. There there is a lot. Those are unsettling moments in the movie. It's Mm -hmm. definitely not a horror movie. It's definitely not. Um, I felt, um, I don't know. I don't want to say uniquely qualified to enjoy this movie because it makes me out to be a lot smarter than i am <laughs> but um you know I, I spent a long time in band class in school i mm-hmm. spent about five years as a, as a band nerd in high school um and in addition to that i also spent about five years in german class and have been to germany a few times so mm-hmm. a lot of the technical language which admittedly isn't important to the enjoyment of the movie i i felt like i was kind of getting away with something i was like i i knew a lot of the the stuff that they were talking about. So some of the German in this movie is subtitled. Some of it isn't. Um, I can tell you, having now seen this movie, the stuff that's not subtitled, it's not at all important. It's, it's of course it isn't, because if it was, they would have subtitled it. Yes. If the English-speaking audience needed to know, it would have been subtitled. It's just it's just a little fun to know what they're talking about. Um, Kate Blanchett is uh, nominated for Best Actress for this role and uh, is widely considered to be one of the two question mark yeah i really the one pretty much the one i my my main concern and i and i hate this my main concern the other one is michelle yo for everything everywhere all at once Mm -hmm. for the vowels basically yeah 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 it's called in our chat i i think michelle yo is good in that movie I think Kate Blanchett is on another level. Mm-hmm. I honestly, I put this performance of her in Tar up there with like Dan Lewis in There Will Be Blood. Yeah, like this is a, a performance for the ages, and I'm really scared that she's not going to win because she already has two Oscars. Yeah, the politics of the Oscars are obviously it's disgusting. Ridiculous. It just it just makes me realize I'm like it's not a meritocracy. And that infuriates me. And I was, I, I don't want to go too off on a segue, but, but this leads in perfectly. I was listening to another podcast, a podcast with podcasters who are deep in this industry that I respect immensely. And they were talking about how they hate when people win multiple Oscars. They're like, spread the wealth. I'm like, no, no. get fucking better at yeah. your job. You want to beat the best, then be better. It's not Kate Blanchett's fault that she's so fucking good. She's already won two, and then she does another career-defining performance. Sorry, the other people nominated, up your fucking game. To be the man, you got to beat the man. Yeah, and so I won't be overly upset if Michelle Yeoh wins, but in my mind, that would be an upset, even though she is obviously the number two out of the five nominees this year. I honestly... 
flat out don't see how somebody could legitimately say that anybody those other four performances granted i've only seen four of the five those other performances are better than this mm-hmm. sorry to derail it please continue your thoughts on sorry yeah, i've missed i've missed the last thing you said i think you said the other four performances there's other four performances yeah. so of the five nominated i've only seen four i have not yeah. seen one performance okay and it's one of the ones that was nominated there's no way she's better than this but whatever got it okay yeah. so just to clarify Kate blanchett is your pick for best actress of the year yes so far without having seen this one i'll tell you you want to know what it is mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett is the performance of the year. Mm-hmm. Male, female, supporting per- lead. Every she is the best performance this year. Yeah. In my opinion. Cool. No, I I felt very strongly about it too. I don't think I had her as head and shoulders head and shoulders above everybody else. I think there's a there's a few others that I'm still looking still going to be looking at mm-hmm. and I I want to actually sit down with the nominees and do a list out of and do predictions. I don't think I've done that in previous years. Um, but she's obviously exceptional. Even beyond the the acting of it all, the being convincing, the playing emotions in a convincing way, the technicality, is that a word? That I don't know, the, the variety that she needs to have in this movie of, you know, speaking two languages and learning to be a professional-grade conductor, which is not an easy thing to even pretend to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know... All, all of the stuff that is being asked of her in this movie is so, so deep. And then she goes to some very dark, deep, visceral places um, in this movie. So worth seeing for her performance alone. The film, again, try not to get into spoilers. It's very non-traditional. It, Agreed. The plot of it is very non-traditional. It actually worked for me in a lot of ways. I had to really think about it after... After the film ended, I had to think, well, do I really like that? Do I do I like that it ended in that way? And I think the answer is yes. Um, there are certain things in this movie, let's say, that you would expect to be a bigger deal that aren't. Yes. Yeah, that's about as, as deep as I'll get into that. And I had to kind of wrestle with that a little bit and think about it. Any movie that makes you think about it after you've left, I think it's done a good job. Agreed. So um, I was very impressed by the movie, mostly impressed by Blanchett's performance. The character of Lydia Tarr and the screenplay um, are really exceptionally good. The dialogue that she's given, having a great actress, one of the greatest actresses of all time, um, reading this tier of dialogue is just a feast for the senses. Um, and she does great work with it. It's very technical, very high level. And at times, you can find yourself as an audience member just being like, wait, what the fuck is she talking about again? <laughs> and that, that feels intentional to a degree. Um, so I guess the... Uh, the summary of Tar is that I feel like I'm going to need to watch it again to conceptualize some of the big ideas that it's mm-hmm. trying to get at. Ultimately, is it is about genius and it is about whether it is ethical to enjoy the work of somebody who might not be awesome, personally, <laughs> which is something that we've wrestled with on this podcast before. We've, yep. We've, talk about I mean, we're talking about hollywood here half these people are monsters you know uh is it ethical to enjoy and promote the work of these people that's a, a valid question that the movie asks and i think it's uh it, it asks it um very succinctly and mm-hmm. very nicely so uh, i'll leave it there for tar for right now uh it gets a four for me for right now okay um but a very good movie just before you move on mm-hmm. i'm gonna say right now the scene with her at juilliard talking to that woke student oh that's a great scene might be the scene of the year for me yeah it's great yep 
I could not get enough of that scene. Mm-hmm. Couldn't get enough. Yeah, okay, well, like to, to linger on that for a second, that is such a great scene. I feel like I can see this movie being polarizing when maybe it shouldn't be. It's I actually find it to be pretty apolitical, and I find it to be... Um, apolitical is maybe the wrong word. It definitely touches on some political um, topics. I'll, I'll, I guess I can just come out and say... Um, I'd call what people call cancel culture is kind of a theme of the movie. Yes. Um, and it, it kind of is questioning the ethics of it, but I don't feel like the film really takes a stance on it either way. That's in that scene. Um, you know, our main character is taking a stance on that. Yep. She has very, a very clear point of view on it. Yep. Um, but you know, I can't really get further into that theme without <laughs> delving into the ending, which I don't want to talk about. Yep. But, um, I I don't feel like the film is taking a, a strong stance either way. I agree. Yeah. Yep. But I can see people on both sides of that issue being either offended or vindicated. I agree. <laughs> depending, depending on their reading of the movie. So yep. anyway, uh, that, that's where I'll leave it on tar for now. It's, as you may have guessed, it's a pretty thought-provoking movie. Um, and I, Manny and I both recommend it both on a technical level and on a... You know, I was, when I was watching it, I was like, I think Sam's going to really like this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I did. Good. And I, I think I'll, I'll try to revisit it. It's a dark and difficult movie. So we'll, we'll see about it. I'd love to rewatch this. Yeah. Me too. Okay. I was on a theme, I guess, this week. I was on a theme, um, had performance on the brain, had music on the brain. Um, <laughs> so I decided to revisit oh. a movie about music. Which could not be more different tonally than Tar. Uh, that is a former Manny Movie Club pick by uh, Mike Tradulo. Yeah. I believe. As the 2013 comedy drama musical, according to uh, according to IMDb. It's a musical? Well, it's, it just says music. It doesn't say musical. Okay. It says comedy drama music okay. film. Uh, that is Begin Again. Great film. A chance encounter between a down and out music music business executive and a young singer-songwriter new to Manhattan turns into a promising collaboration between the two talents. Uh, Manny and I both have watched this movie before and we both gave it a five when we watched it the first time. I wrote a brief review about this on Letterboxd so I'll sort of re-summarize that here but this film does such a good job speaking to me and such a good job communicating what I have always felt but never really known how to uh, properly express, which is the, the the power that music has over people, the power that it has to to heal and to injure, the power that it has to drive people apart and bring them together. Uh, it, it is truly a, a, a tool that can be used for so much. Um, I can't remember who it was that said this. It might have even been like Oppenheimer or something like that who said, Every tool that humankind has ever been given uh, can open the gates of heaven or the gates of hell. And that kind of feels like what this movie is trying to say about music. It shows these beautiful montages of people being brought together by music. And it also shows that it, it drives a couple different relationships in the movie apart. Yep. Um, and that is, uh, that, that's just the power that music has and that art has over people. Um, John Carney is the director of this movie and is somebody I'm going to be watching very closely. He 
Uh, I believe, uh, I don't have it in front of me right now. I think he wrote and directed. Yeah, wrote and directed this movie, uh, as well as another one that I enjoyed but was a little unpolished called Once, and a, and a really cute uh, music romance movie called Sing Street. Which I fucking love. Yeah, really good movie. I love that movie. Yeah, great soundtrack as well. And same thing with Begin Again, amazing soundtrack. Mark Ruffalo and Keira Knightley have great chemistry with one another. Um, Adam Levine is in this movie. When I... When I Think of the cast for this movie. I'm actually not really wowed. Adam Levine, not an actor. James Corden, polarizing to say the least. Um, who else do we have in this? Uh, Haley Steinfeld, not exactly. Uh, no disrespect to Haley Steinfeld, but not considered to be like a like a top tier actress or anything like that. She has an Oscar nomination. Does she really? For what? True Grit. Oh yeah. Shit, I haven't seen that movie. You know. You haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. No. Another Coen Brothers movie. You haven't seen. No, I know. It's really fucking good yeah that's more on the no country vibe of theirs isn't it it's very serious really, western it's really good. i should add that to the to the old watch list um but yeah anyway begin again i don't know if there's too much deeper analysis there but it really is just a, a film about the power of music the power that it holds over people and uh, how, and the people who wield it basically um the idea that that is present in this movie of uh of recording an album outside was so fun uh, as many alluded to I, I spent some time recording this week so this was sort of a pick in anticipation of that a mm-hmm. movie about the recording process and hopefully the the fun that is contained uh therein and the issues that sometimes arise and the problems that you sometimes need to overcome um yeah it's just about musicians celebrating music and I love it. It's, it's what, a, a, it, what a shock. It's a great heartwarming movie. It's an easy watch hour 44. Um, and Mark Ruffalo has a, an excellent performance in it. As far as I'm concerned, um, really, really good performance. And then uh, the last thing I'll talk about is, is the scene where he sees Keira Knightley for the first time. Um, a, a scene that I think you and I both love yep. of uh, where he hears this song and everything just clicks. It really, does a great job showcasing his genius where he can just hear this this little snippet. He can hear a girl with an acoustic guitar on a stage, unpolished, imperfect, but the instruments around her start moving themselves. Mm-hmm. And he can just hear this arrangement. He's like, oh, this is a song. This like It needs work, but it's a song. And it, I've never seen that visually communicated uh, yep. in, in such a way. Um, it's a ton of fun. It only has a 62 Metascore, which is good, not great. Um, I, I gave it a five again. I, I, had a I great gave it time. a five. I, this movie blew me away. Yeah. Yeah, 100% recommend. Absolutely love this movie. Yeah, fucking love it. Cool. All right. From two movies about how difficult it is to be a performer to another. I watched uh, a film which, again, controversial, it would seem. Uh, keeping with my 2022 watches, watch this with PFG, uh, Wes Meineker. Shout out to Wes. <laughs> Talking about Babylon, 2022 comedy drama history movie, according to IMDb, which is an interesting tag. Um, a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess. It traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence. And depravity. Is that how you say that? Depravity? Mm-hmm. Uh, depravity? It, depravity? Depravity. I'm going to go with. Correct me. Um, oh. In early Hollywood. This, my favorite review that I've seen for this movie on Letterboxd is somebody who just called it La La Land's 
horny evil twin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot more R-rated than uh, than La La Land for sure. Um, there's a lot of sex and drugs and bodily fluids, just more than you can possibly count. Okay. Uh, this is a three-hour-long epic about early Hollywood, but it really is about a lot more than that. I don't want to get too deeply into it, especially because I know Manny hasn't seen this Have movie. Not seen it. As it's also getting me- like mediocre might be a, a touch strong but it's only got 60 on metascore or 60 on on metacritic that's not good that's not great that's That's a a, that's a three that's orange (laughs) metacritic kind of color codes i think anything above a 60 gets a green Mm -hmm. and then uh, anything below a 50 gets a red as far as i know Mm. or uh, anything below a 40 gets a red yeah yeah uh so this is in the orange officially uh kind of lukewarm I, I fucking loved this movie, too. It's written and directed by Damien Chazelle, who wrote two of my favorite movies of all time, wrote and directed two of my favorite movies of all time, Whiplash and La La Land. Somehow, I still haven't seen First Man. After award season, I'm going to rectify that, because I've watched three movies of his, of the four that he's made, and I've loved all three of them. I think you're going to like First Man as well. You think so? Yep. Yeah. Th- this is a film that, while I understand that it's controversial, people may feel that it's overlong. Um, I found it very similar, um, both in terms of its construction and in terms of its themes, to movies like Wolf of Wall Street, movies like Boogie Nights. Definitely takes a lot of inspiration from Boogie Nights, actually, structurally. I love both of those movies. Me too. And and I loved this one. I think it's a film, even though it's about the early, it's about the early 20th century in Hollywood, really what it's about thematically is just what happens when people who are gods, people who are larger than life get everything they want all the sex drugs and rock and roll even though it predates rock and roll all all of everything that they could possibly want the big houses the fancy cars the women what happens when the world passes them by when they refuse to change or are unable to change and the world forgets about them as a result it is at times very funny at times very um ludicrous i think one of the reasons that it has such a low meta score is that it can seem a bit random it can seem a bit episodic mm-hmm. it can seem like things are only loosely connected but really they're connected by that idea of of the grandeur of it all of the excess and what happens to a person when that's taken away from them and when they'll do anything to get it back um, that's sort of what I view as the connective tissue of this movie. And for that reason, some of the parts that I've seen other reviewers say seem so random, they work perfectly for me. They work yeah. really well. Um, so again, I get th- I get why it's controversial. I respectfully disagree. I give it a five. Wow. Five. Yeah. A good streak here. Indeed. I had a good week for movies. <laughs> I sure did. Uh, you and... and uh... Wesley, mm-hmm. both love this movie. A couple of the other podcasts I listen to love this movie. Everybody that I've heard that has seen this movie has loved this movie. So I don't know where this low meta score and this un, un, unfair reception is coming from. So I'm looking forward to seeing this. This is on my watch list. I'll be getting to it fairly soon. Cool. Um, I mean, for what it's worth, the user rating on IMDb is 7.4 out of 10. So um, maybe, I don't know if that's worth anything to you, but it's, uh, it's you know. What's its letterbox score? 
Uh, I want to say it's like a four. Last time I checked, I'm pretty sure it was at a four, which is... IMDb user ratings, while I'll happily look at them, Letterbox user ratings mean a little bit more to me because I feel Letterbox is really more for movie fans. Yeah. Not as open as IMDb. What's Letterbox got? 3.9. Yep, so fuck. Yeah, so like everybody that I've talked to who's seen this movie really liked it. Um, as, the... Metascore really is baffling to me because even if you don't, you know, air quotes here, even if you don't get the movie, that's fine. I mean, even if you do get it, you don't have to like it. But the technical aspects of this are outstanding. There's a party scene right at the beginning, which is so grandiose and beautiful in its excess. And the imagery is just exceptional. Like, I don't know how you can see that on a screen and not go like, fuck yeah, that is... <laughs> That is a scene. That's that's Hollywood. So I I, I really don't get the uh, I, I don't understand the sixty meta score. I All really right. don't. I think it's great. Cool. Um, yeah, that's basically what I've been watching. I talked for longer than I thought I was going to, but a that'll happen, and b I just got damn excited about three really good movies this I week. I can see that. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna talk about three movies I watched this week. And then one movie I watched a little while ago that I wanted to talk about a little bit. So the first movie I want to talk about is a movie I was super fucking jazzed to see. Because it's the first time I got to see it on the big screen. And that is the 1942 classic Casablanca. A cynical expatriate American cafe owner struggles to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape the Nazis in French Morocco. This was played on the big screen here in Kamloops, and I was ecstatic to be able to go see it. I got to take my sister, Mushhead, and my friend Jessica. All three had never seen this film. The theater was... I I can't say packed. There was a lot of people there, and that made me so very the happy. Paramount is never packed. No. <laughs> it made me very happy to see that many people there. And what made me even happier was, one, well, one, watching this incredibly fucking great movie. Two, seeing it on the big screen. And three, hearing audience reaction to all the parts that I love get the same reaction that I give it. Hearing people laugh at the stuff that I laughed at Seeing my friends experience this movie for the first time was great. Uh, I had a fucking blast with this movie. Seeing everyone enjoy <laughs> Captain Renault as much as I do was awesome. I had a great time seeing this. It was really fun seeing it on the big screen. I'm going to probably start trying to go see those classic films that they bring as a little bit more often than before. Um, just my only gripe with the Paramount is their lack of surround sound. You, if you're ever going to, if, if you're in Kamloops and you're going to go to the Paramount theater, I would suggest sitting closer to the screen than you normally would uh, because the sound is coming from speakers up near the front. Dude, when I was, um, when I was at Tar, I was watching Tar at the Paramount, and uh, the 
the air vents kept turning on and off and like they were loud enough that I had to kind of like crane my head to hear some of the dialogue. Yeah. yeah that's that's not good for a movie theater. I know. So that's my only complaint because the projection is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Their their projector and their screen is really good. Uh, but the sound needs to be upgraded. Other than that, I had a great time. Casablanca, obviously, five out of five. Yeah, we uh, we reviewed this in uh, episode one hundred and thirty three of the podcast, which is uh, that's got to be around Christmas twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christmas twenty twenty. Yep. Um, it was my first watch. I think. I think so. I think it was. Yeah, it was. No, it was definitely my first watch. Manny was really excited to get me to watch it, and I was over the moon about it. It's, yeah. Um, I'm always worried with old classics that they, uh, you know, sometimes they're a product of their time. Sometimes they're sometimes they're really innovative when they came out, and then they just, you know, uh, they get surpassed. That is not the case. No. With Casablanca. It holds up exceptionally well. I gave it a five as well. Yeah. Um, one of the thing, one of my favorite things afterwards, uh, talking with the girls was all of them that said it was really cool to see the movie that had all those quotes and yeah. they did, you don't realize how many quotes come from this movie. Yeah. That Round ev- up the usual suspects. Yeah. The, the, the phrase, the usual suspects yep. comes Here, from this. Here's looking at you kid. Yeah. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It, it's play it again, Sam. Yeah, man, do you have any idea how many times in my life oh. sitting at, especially sitting at a piano at a music store, to the extent that I do, uh, I get play it again, Sam, all the time. Still, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even though he doesn't actually say play it again, Sam. Sure doesn't. Says, uh, uh, play it, Sam. Yeah, play as time goes by. Yeah, for old time's sake. Yeah, I think he also gives uh, gives a. He might give a play it again at one point. I can't remember, but not a play it again, Sam. Nope. Yeah, anyway, nope. doesn't matter. Doesn't stop people from uh, from saying it. I know. <laughs> uh, the next movie that I want to talk about is a movie I've been waiting years and years to come to high definition. It's been rumored forever, but I just couldn't wait anymore because I desperately want to rewatch this movie. It is the 1989 James Cameron film, The Abyss. A civilian diving team is enlisted to search for a lost nuclear submarine and faces danger while encountering an alien aquatic species. I fucking love this movie. I love this movie so much, despite its numerous problems. This is a movie I can watch over and over again. I've watched this movie a ton of times. There are two cuts to this movie, the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Now, the director's cut has some stuff added in that I really like, but I hate the director's cut ending. (sighs) I want Sam to watch this movie, but I want to be there when he watches it. Now, I can't say why... Because it would spoil it. But there is... There's there's one scene in here that I, I basically just want to be able to watch Sam watch it. This movie um, stars Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastriantonio, uh, who we just reviewed in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Mm. This arguably might be my favorite Ed Harris performance. Wow. Not because it's such a great performance. Like, I think his best performance 
is Apollo, Apollo 13. 13. Yeah. <laughs> this is my favorite performance because his character, um, uh, Bud, Bud Brigman, is that right? Yeah, Bud Brigman. Um, he's such a good guy. There's just something inherently decent about his character that really just, honestly, just makes me fall in love with him. And it has the chemistry between the cast, um, especially the cast, especially the cast of, of the crew of this um, undersea drilling team. Um, you can tell how tight they are. And it's easy to see why when you watch the documentary on the making of this movie, which this movie is in the upper echelon of one of the hardest and most tr- problematic shooting ever. Probably the other ones in consideration would be another James Cameron film, Titanic, Apocalypse Now, and Jaws. Those would be the Mount Rushmore of problematic productions. Waterworld? Waterworld wasn't a troubleshoot. They just they just had a set sink. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't problems on the set. They just had a problem. This was just nothing but hell on earth. Exorcist? That was problematic? Yeah, don't you remember we talked about this? Like We did. Um I mean there's there's debate uh, as far as how much of it was actually real and how much was fabricated for marketing purposes, but allegedly um, didn't one of the sets burn down except for, except oh, for Linda right. Blair's room. Um, she had a, a pet die on set. Um, her back was permanently injured. Mm, you know? By that thing, yeah. Uh, the, could... the temperature in the room made a bunch of the actors sick. Yeah, this... I, I get what you're saying, but this is like a troubled shoot in regards that it took everything and everyone basically fighting the director to get this thing done. James Cameron notorious for being an asshole. Hmm. And in this movie, he like he does now created technology just so he could make this movie. They made special underwater cameras. He told his crew, he told his, not his crew, well, no, his crew and his cast, if you have to go to, if you have to piss, you're pissing in your suit because we're not stopping shooting just so you can go pee. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much chlorine in the water that a lot of the cast and crew hair got bleached. Uh, the, 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 I wish I've oh God. Now I want to rewatch the documentary. Mm. That being said, um, flat out the abyss is a five for me. It's more like a four, but my enjoyment of the characters, the story, and at the time how this movie pushed CGI forward, um, this movie showed what CGI is coming down the pipe because this is four years before Jurassic Park. Now, and actually it's two, it's two years before Terminator 2. What they do here in the abyss in only one scene, there's only one scene with true CGI 
it paves the way for what they do in Terminator 2. And it's when you and when you know it's James Cameron that's done both, and you see the scene, you're like, oh, yeah, I see what I see what you pushed there to see if you could do this for Terminator oh, Two. We got some Silver Surfer looking motherfuckers, or what? <laughs> no, not not quite. Yeah. But um, this is one that when I have you over for movie night, I might throw on. Yeah, cool. I'd be interested in that. Um, but yeah. The, I'm gonna leave it there. I just—it's just a movie that I I absolutely love. I don't think a lot of other people will love it as much as I do. Um, but again, the action scenes. There's some incredible underwater action scenes that James Cameron puts together. And again, like we say with them, the spatial geography—you know where everybody is. Oh, it's it's just so brilliantly put together. I love this movie. Um, five out of five. Cool. Another one uh, that you always talk about putting on for a movie night, or I feel like you have before, is a uh, Contact. Contact, we're going to be reviewing. Nice. What year is it? That uh, ninety-seven. Oh, so it's coming up. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Zemeckis. Nice. Yeah. Um, the next movie I want to talk about is a little scene film that I can't remember how I stumbled across years ago. Um. <laughs> to give you an idea of how little seen this movie is, it's from 1990. Next year, we won't be reviewing it. Hmm. Um, it's worldwide gross in 1990 um, was $715,000. Not a lot. No. This movie uh, is called Coupe de Ville. Three three bickering brothers who don't get along reluctantly go on a cross-country road trip together to deliver a car in time for their mother's birthday. This stars Patrick Dempsey, Daniel Stern, Air Gross, and Alan Arkin. I watched this a ton on home video. And with our 1990 miniseries starting... I think around in April, I decided I'm like, I've been wanting to rewatch this movie, so I ordered the DVD. And watching it, I, I was just, I just fell in love with it again. This is another one of those Homer picks that I don't think anybody else will enjoy as much as I do. It is about three brothers driving across the they're driving from Detroit to Miami to deliver this Coupe de Ville for their mother's birthday. It's all about these three brothers reconnecting after, I think, five to eight years of being apart. They are so very different. It's a, you know, it's about male bonding. It's a very, like, well, it's a very young Daniel Stern, a very young Patrick Dempsey. And... Alan Arkin just steals every scene he's in. I, well, I gave this movie a four out of five. Uh, it's not a movie I would recommend. It's and it's easy for me not to recommend it because you can't see it anywhere. It's not streaming anywhere. You can only see it by buying the DVD. So, but I bought it. I just wanted to talk about it because it makes me so happy. <laughs> <clears throat> the 
there's a scene that affected me as a young boy. So I would have been 15 when I saw this movie. 14, 15. <laughs> One of the brothers um, meets up with his college sweetheart who he thinks uh, is in love with him. Uh, she is not. <laughs> she, in fact, has a live-in boyfriend. He decides to – he's very meek, so he decides he's going to stand up for himself for once. So he goes over there, seduces her. In the midst of the seduction, he's he's brushing her hair from behind, and he's being he's being a little debonair, a little suave, not too much. But he goes, he goes. Do you remember the last time we made love? And she's like, and she, you can see on her face, she's fondly remembering it, and she's like, yes, I do. And he's like, I fell asleep afterwards, and she's like, that's okay, I didn't mind. They go to bed, and he falls asleep again. <laughs> <laughs> And he wakes, and he's so tired that she's trying to get him out because the boyfriend's coming home. Mm. Boyfriend shows up, beats him up. But I remember as a young man, I'm like, do you always fall asleep after sex? Is that normal? I remember, like, I still think about that yeah. to this day. It's something that has stuck with me. Um, there's a couple um, touching scenes. Uh, especially at the end um, with Alan Arkin and the boys when they've arrived um, at home. Uh, Alan Arkin is the father of them. And I've, you know what? I'm, I'm going to spoil this movie because you'll never watch it unless you ever wanted to borrow the DVD. But uh, there's a thousand other movies I'd recommend before mm -hmm. this. But it's, it's the moment that almost makes me cry every time. Daniel Stern is playing a character that he you wouldn't, expect someone like Daniel Stern to play, especially knowing him, right? Like he's not that bumbling idiot from the home alone movies. And yeah, he's totally. actually, um, uh, he was in the air, he's at air force. He's a military guy mm. and he's the oldest brother. And they, um, they get there and the movie, the movie's not subtle. The movie is about these trying to get these brothers to reconnect and that's why Alan Arkin got the three brothers to drive it. And there's just this moment at the end where uh, Daniel, he's like, I don't understand why you got us to do this. Like, we all drove down here together to do this. And Alan Arkin's like, you drove down here together. Yeah, Pops, we drove down here together. You drove down here together. He's like, yeah, Pops, we all drove down here together. And you can just see that Alan Arkin is trying to convey to his oldest son the point wasn't that is the, the point. The point wasn't the car. Mm -hmm. The point is getting you together, uh -huh. and it's it's the best filmmaking in the scene. Is this is the end between Daniel Stern and Alan Arkin? It's really touching, and it almost makes me cry every time. But it really gets to me. Alan Arkin is really really good in this movie, um, and really really touching. It's just it's just one of those movies that it's like it's not good, but I fucking love it. Um, Nothing it's a, wrong with that at all. It's a four to five easily for me. I, I've now that I own it, this is a movie I'll probably go back to on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, so I just pulled it up uh, on Letterbox. So it has a three point two, which is not great, but it's you know respectable. That's it's definitely a, respectable. It's in the realm of enjoyability. Um, 
I just wanted to get some comparables. Um, so Babylon, a movie that is a, a, from a pretty famous director, but bombed. Uh, it's currently bombing at the box office, not doing great. Um, logged by 255,000 people on Letterboxd. Um, Begin Again is the other most recent movie that I've seen in here. Um, didn't do super great. Not a huge high budget thing. Uh, I don't know too many people that have seen it. About 210,000 people have logged it. Just so we have a barometer of where normal is. Um, Coupe de Ville from 1990. You want to take? You want to take a stab? How many people have logged this movie? How many people claim to have seen it? Under three thousand. That is correct. Under a thousand? Correct. Holy fuck! For real? Eight hundred and twenty. Well, I'm one of them. Eight hundred and twenty <laughs> people. Um. So obviously, very obscure movie. Probably one of the most obscure movies you've logged. I would imagine. Yeah, now I'm, it. I'm sure there are some uh, some documentaries that have it beat for obscurity for least number of logs but that's that's pretty low down there i will add as well wes already has this on his watch list um <laughs> wes has coop de on his watch list i swear to god so i, I pulled up his watch list he's got nearly two thousand movies on his watch list holy fuck so good luck wes trying to get all those watched that's crazy I, I thought I had a lot on mine. I have like a hundred and something. I've got three hundred and something now. But on I have my hundred and thirty eight. But on my watch list, like I haven't I haven't put all the movies on my watch list that should be on there. Like I j- recently just inputted all my nineteen nineties on there. Yeah. So those will be I don't up input soon. any of the upcoming podcast movies on mine. I do. I yeah. do. So you're gonna have a lot more than me. I mean, yeah. you already do have a lot more than me. Yeah. But even so, like that's already a pretty big watch list. Yeah. And then Wes is close to 2,000. Jesus, Wes. I know. Crazy. Well, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, did I cut you off? Oh, I was just thinking, I'm like, Wes only watches like less than 200 movies a year. That's that's 20 That's twenty years of watching right there. Uh, Wes told me uh, when we met up in Vancouver, he's going to try to do the, the Manny Manual. He's going to try to do the, three, uh, the 365 this year. Is he really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're recording this episode here on February 9th, 2023, and he's at 27 films. So it looks like he's lagging behind a little he, bit. Yep. Yeah, already lagging behind a bit. But, but he's also going to school He is right going now. to school. Like, when summer comes, he could fucking crack it. Oh, yeah, big time. I think that's what he's planning on doing. <laughs> Good luck to you, Wes. Does that mean I'm going to have to watch more? Can, am I allowed to have somebody beat me? I mean, we've you and I have had many conversations about this. I don't think you're going to... Hitting 365 once is a chore. I don't I need, three, I don't need I to tell three, you. 390 or 395 is what yeah. I did. And you had to actively try. Judging by what you have planned for yourself this year, and don't let me reveal any details of your personal life, reaching those those heights again is going to be tough. I'm not going to say you can't do it, because if anyone could, it'd be you. But yeah. uh, it's I not going to be easy. I'm not I'm not planning on doing that again this year. If it happens, great. But I won't be... I, like, last year I was actively trying to do it. And not act... Like, I wasn't like... I was like, I have to watch a movie because I want to do this. I was just watching a lot of movies. And that's probably going to be the same this year. But I'm not going to be... Like, I was actively trying... So, like, any time I had a free time to squeeze in a movie, I would probably do it. This year, I won't. Like, I can always say, like, this week alone, I had a couple. This week, it's Thursday. There was two nights this week that I had more than enough time to watch another movie, and I didn't. If Where if I was trying to make that goal, I 100% would have. So, I'm not actively trying to get 365 again, but who knows if West starts kicking my ass. How many has he got this year? I think I said 27. 27? 
Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So he's fallen behind a movie a, movie a day already. Yeah, I'm at 45. I, I count 42. Oh, is that, is that what it says? 42? Yeah, your page says 42. Oh, I thought it was 45. There may be, maybe you haven't logged. No, no, it, I'm going off the top of my head. Yeah. Because I, I remember taking a peek at it today just while, while I was cooking dinner. Yeah, so you're already almost doubling him. <laughs> and he's trying to do a movie, movie a day and you're not. Yeah, but he's got school. Yeah. Come summer, he'll, he'll crush me. Yeah. Uh, okay, last movie I want to talk about was one that I was looking forward to watching. And in all honesty and retrospect, I don't know why I was looking forward to it. Um, but knocking another one off the 2022 uh, watch list plus uh, Oscar-nominated film. And this is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. A father's wish magically brings a wooden boy to life in Italy, giving him a chance to care for the child. I've come to the realization that Guillermo del Toro is a filmmaker that I just do not connect with. Is he visually stunning? Yes. Does this man have an incredible visual style? Yes. Does this man know how to direct a good film? Yes. Does he make movies that I enjoy? No, he does not. Does he make movies that I hate? No. I think Guillermo del Toro is a perfect three across the board filmmaker for me. I remember you giving one of his films a two. Oh, which one did I? Oh, that was Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Guilty pleasure of mine, for and, sure. And rightfully so. <laughs> his movie, he has this visual style and this visual sense, and his imagination um, is off the charts and unbelievable, and I tip my cap to him. He is an incredibly gifted filmmaker who I'm very glad is out there and pushing the envelope and creating these visual masterpieces. But I watch his movies and I'm watching them for the technical aspects, but I'm not getting invested in the story. Um, I'm, like I really, I don't know when I'll have time, but I am really interested in revisiting The Shape of Water. Mm. Best Picture winner, uh, honestly, that just eats at me. I remember that, you really liking that movie, though. So do I, but the more I think about it, I'm like I feel underwhelmed. I think it. I think it's because I'm. Didn't that beat Get Out? Yeah. Yeah. And three billboards. Yeah, that's the same year as three billboards. 2017. Really? Yeah, because we talked about those. We talked about all of those movies in the first episode we ever did because it was top of 2017. Hmm. Huh. Pretty sure I can double check, but uh, Get Out, Three Billboards, and Shape of Water. I'm gonna say are all 2017. Okay. Um, this movie, stop motion animation, which is always impressive. Um, I just didn't, I didn't connect with it. And I think part of it is because I, I'm just not a fan of the Pinocchio story. Uh, I've, n I've never had a version of the story that I've really connected with, honestly. I'm assuming you've watched the Disney one. Yeah. When I was a kid, not, not really since. You haven't watched the new one, right? No. Oh, please don't. Please. Oh, is that the Robert Zemeckis one? Yes. Yeah. Please. Sam. Heard it's really bad. It's, I, I, it's, it's, hold on. I can pull it up if you want. No, I'm, I'm looking at, I might, I'm just want to double check. I might spoil something here. Mm -hmm. Just double check here. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything for the Sampas or any top 10 lists. 
Um, currently, I've watched 64 films from 2022, Sam. Uh, and I'll just say this. Pinocchio is in the 60s. Whoa. I didn't know you'd seen that many. Neither did I. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's got to be like the top year that you've ever done. It'll or be... that you have logged. Logged? Uh, let's see. 64. 2020 is 52. 52 for 91. So, yeah, that's, that's 91 would have been. Oh, that's what we're currently doing here. Yeah. Mm, 2021 was 57. That's not bad. So I beat last year. Shit, man. Yeah, that's looking to be it. Yep. Yeah. I can tell you I know a year that's coming soon that I that I will beat that. When we do 1999. Oh, yeah, you're going to go crazy. I already made I kind of made my list of ni- I I think I have 100 films from that year I want to try and watch. Wow. And a quick look at our schedule for the movies that we're going to review for that year. It's going to be about a four or five month miniseries. Okay. <laughs> and that's without even asking you what movies you'd like to do. I'm or- sure there will be some. I haven't even taken a look at 99 yet. I know it's going to be an undertaking. We've talked a bit off air about like some of the big ones. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and the- I know there's going to be more. I yeah. know the reputation that year has. Yeah. And the PFGs, we haven't asked them which ones we want to do. So whatever. Um, this movie is visually stunning. It's stop motion, so it looks great. Um, the voice cast is really good. Um, I just didn't connect with it. It did take me a moment to figure out who was playing uh, the Count, uh, Count Volpe. Um, it was Christoph Waltz. Oh, nice. Yeah. And only after reading uh, Jordan's review did I realize who was playing uh, the voice of this monkey called uh, Spazatura? Uh, she might win an Oscar this year for playing uh, Lydia Tarr. Nice. As Kate Blanchett is literally playing a monkey that doesn't speak. What? That's yeah. weird. Just makes sounds. Weird decision. Yes. I'm loving the I'm loving the cast already. Oh, the cast is astounding. Yeah, astounding. Oh, um, um, fuck. Who is? Why can't I think of what this person is from? Hold on. What's the name? Burn Gorman. I recognize the name. Oh, <laughs> as soon as you look him up, you're gonna oh be... yeah yeah yeah. Um, he is in uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. This movie wasn't for me. It gets a three out of five, basically based on the visual visuals of the of the film the technical aspects uh and this is all this is not for kids not for kids right this movie have you seen pan's labyrinth yeah once i might have been a movie club pick it was yeah yeah okay uh this movie uh dives deeply into what appears to well shouldn't say appears to be and honestly who would want who would stand for it uh this is a very anti-nazi film no, <laughs> a very anti-fascist film, not Nazi fascist. I did see that uh, <laughs> there's a character on the cast list named Mussolini. Yes, which I have to imagine is the Benito Mussolini. Yes, and he is voiced by Tom Kenny. If you know who that is, don't. That's the voice of, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a one, one, it's one scene. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the movie delves uh, deep into fascism and how why it's bad. <laughs> Taking a bold stand today, are we? Uh. <laughs> fascism bad. Um, no. Yeah, not for me. I don't really have much else to say. This is most likely, sadly, going to win Best Animated Feature this year. Really? I, yeah, probably. Oh, there's so many good animated movies, though. Yeah. This is probably going to win. Oh, too bad. I know. I know. I, I say too bad. I haven't seen it. It's possible I see this and fucking love it. I'm really hoping Turning Red pulls off the upset. Really? You're rooting for Turning Red? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. You got to look up this category because I remember looking at this and being like, whoa, that's a lot of big names. Uh, I haven't seen The Sea Beast yet, which I'm very excited to watch. Oh, and you also haven't seen Marcel the Shell. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's the one I'm hoping to win. Although it kind of blurs the line of whether it's really an animated movie. It won't win. Because there's some, uh, there's some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some live action mm-hmm. characters in it. Um, yeah, I, I don't expect it to win, but it's who I'm rooting for. for yep. Sure. And so am I right? Is it Pinocchio turning red? The Sea Beast, Marcel the Shell, and which one am I missing? Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots was really fucking good. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's exceptional. Quick thing on Puss in Boots. Uh. Spoilers for the Sampas. Mm. The villain in Puss in Boots is probably going to win my best villain of the year. I've heard I've heard that. It's, I've heard it's a great villain. Unbelievable! <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. Okay. Uh, that's what I've been watching. Are you gonna you're, are you gonna watch Pinocchio? I take it. Um, well, we talked about. Um, I mean, I always get excited for the Oscars in my home. I'm the one who gets the most excited. Um, my game plan to get my roommates excited. Um, they're both big fans of animation. I'm gonna suggest that we watch all of the best animated features this year. Nice, so, well done. Uh, whether or not a they agree, I think they probably will. And b we actually do it. Uh, those are you know different stories. But fair enough. That's what I'm. That's what I'm gonna go with. I don't want that to come at the expense of like best picture nominees though. Oh, that's fair. I think I'm only missing three for Best Picture nominees. I'm missing um, Fableman's Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. I so I'm missing two. Yeah. I was about to rewatch Fableman's last night. Mm. I didn't know you'd seen it. I own it. Oh. How about that? It's playing at the Paramount. I know it is. Yeah, I'm planning on going this week. When? M- maybe Saturday. I think it's playing Saturday. Oh, I can't do Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not totally sure. Spoiler for the Fablemans, I fucking loved it. Great. My uh, my brother went to go see it uh, as well and said he really liked it. Yeah? Yeah. So, I'm going to do that. This is a total tangent, and we've already, tangent. Gone, already gone so long on this. Oh, we really have. I don't know why I had this in my head today, but I, I recommend a lot of movies to my brother. I like to think that he respects my recommendations to him, and I recommended one today. He hasn't watched it yet, but I just knew you would like that I put this movie to him because I, w- I was just thinking of war movies to recommend to him i just texted him I'm like you ever seen master and commander and he's like no i haven't i'm like you should really watch master and commander and he told me that he threw it on his watch list so i'll keep you posted if he decides to watch it but fuck yeah yeah it's a great fucking movie i can't i can't wait to re-review that one yeah i i after award season my first priority is first man I might just go ahead and rewatch Master and Commander. I just I... watched it like last week. Really? Yes. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's really good. All right. Okay. Let's get into the reason that we're here tonight, and that is The Silence of the Lambs. Released 
Valentine's Day 1991. Aww. Almost exactly, what was that, 32 years ago? Mm-hmm. I almost got down. The whole, oh, this comes out the day before. This will, this will be released on February 13th. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. Hope you got someone in your life whom you love, even if that's you. I have you, Sam. Oh, shucks. And I have you. <laughs> and also, hi, Emma. <laughs> I, was say, I was like, you better say the other one. <laughs> she doesn't listen. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> Not surprised. Uh, this is directed by Jonathan Demme, written by Ted Talley, based off the Thomas Harris novel, uh, starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and Ted Levine. Has a meta score of 85, a letterbox score of 4.3, it is number 74 on the AFI Top 100 and number 22 on the IMDb Top 250. Pretty good list. It won five Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It had seven nominations, the aforementioned five at one, as well as Best Sound and Best Film Editing. It had a budget of $19 million, Grossed $130 domestically making it the fourth highest grossing film of the year and 272 worldwide the plot i actually forgot to write down a young fbi cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer a madman who skins his victims if you had read that plot and knew nothing about this movie you'd be like this is gonna be horseshit Mm -hmm. this movie not horseshit sam your spoiler-free thoughts on The Silence of the Lambs. So I have seen Silence of the Lambs before. This uh, I was estimating to Manny earlier. I want to say it's probably about my third watch mm-hmm. ever. Uh, watched it for the first time when I was in my teens. Uh, after, uh, after high school, I really went through a big movie phase where uh, all, my, all my friends were in post-secondary. And, uh, and I was not anymore. Uh, so I, uh, I locked myself in my room and watched a shit ton of movies. And a lot of movies that uh, were considered sort of, um, let's call them recent classics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking classics in terms of like, you know, 40s and 50s, Casablanca sort of situation, but this sort of era. So this was one of the ones where I, I watched it of my own volition, just kind of on a whim. And I remember just being blown away instantly yeah. and just getting it instantly. Oh, like, oh, of course this was this turned into a classic. I can I can totally see why. Um, I the reputation that I knew of it was that it's the only horror movie to ever win Best Picture. Frankly, whether it's categorized as a horror movie, I I if this comes out today, I think it's just considered a thriller. IMDB um, has it as a thriller. Yeah, and uh yeah, if you look on yeah, so the narrative about this movie is often that it's the only horror movie to ever win Best Picture. I'll grant that it's the closest thing to a horror movie to win Best Picture. I agree. Um, but I, I disagree that it is horror. Anyway, that's all semantics anyway. Um, what I knew about this movie is that it's what I just said, and it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Also, that it has one of the great performances of all time with Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Um, I found that very much to be the case. One of the things that I've found in rewatches of this movie is that Jodie Foster's performance really doesn't get talked about a lot anymore, which is funny because she won the award for it. Um, but this is considered to be like Anthony Hopkins' movie. Don't disagree with that, really. Um, but she is doing such exceptional work, too, um, both with her verbal and her non-verbal acting. There's a scene at the end. I'm going to try not to spoil it, even though it's a 32-year-old movie. Um, where there, she doesn't really have anybody to talk to, but she's in a very intense situation in the dark, and uh, like 
her nonverbal acting in that scene is so good and you the you the audience member are scared shitless for her yep. and a lot of that is due to the creepy camera work with which i'll touch on in a second part of that is due to jodie foster's performance um it'd be really easy for her to get trampled on or let's say it'd be easy for a lesser actor to be trampled on mm -hmm. by anthony hopkins in the way that he dominates the scene but every conversation between the two of them is a chess match yes and it, it's a sparring match most of them he comes out on top really all of them he comes out on top um but she holds her own she gets she gets a couple blows in and she does great um so i just wanted to give a shout out to her performance really quick off the bat um the direction by jonathan demi very interesting uh we already talked about philadelphia and talked a little bit about um a very strange direction technique he uses um when he shoots conversations he often has characters looking right down the barrel of the lens yep which is interesting is maybe let's call it polarizing um you may like it you may not in philadelphia it kind of works kind of in sounds of the lambs i think it really works oh 100 it really really works um I, funnily enough i don't like to say this but watching sounds of the lambs this time honestly made me like that aspect of philadelphia a little bit less because here it just feels like it serves such a good purpose it feels like um having this uh, the psychopath Hannibal Lecter, who his whole bit is that he can just look at people and know. He can look into your soul. He can just know everything about you. Every tiny detail about your personality is just a clue. Like every everything about your presentation and your smell and your look and the way you talk is all just a clue about who you are inside. So having him look directly into the camera is unsettling to you, the viewer. It makes you feel like he's analyzing you, and it's creepy. It really lends to that. Now, seeing how effective that is, like I said, it made me kind of question what the inclusion of that technique in Philadelphia a little mm -hmm. bit more because it just works so well here and I don't get anything out of it in, in the other movie. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so interesting filmmaking technique, great performances. Um, there's a lot of other technical elements we could touch on that I, I'll just wait until the technical section to praise them. But hey. suffice it to say, it's an insanely technically well-made movie um, and the script. The script is top notch. It did win best adapted screenplay. Correct. Um, and there's just we were just talking about Casablanca, how there's so many quotable lines. I forget every time I watch this movie, just like uh, are the lambs still screaming or uh, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Like so many of these legendary lines that uh, you know I I just I forget about them every yep. time. It's no wonder this movie's gone down in film history. It's no wonder that it won best picture. Um, there's so much to love about this movie. I loved it the first two times I watched it. I loved it this time. I'll love it the next time. Um, I'll, I'll leave it on this, which is that it has developed a controversial reputation, um, especially in the queer community, because of the way it is perceived to um, portray trans characters. Mm -hmm. I understand the criticism. I think a careful watching of the movie reveals it to not be as critical of transsexual people correct as other people say it is granted i am a straight white man and i am not the person that it is perceived to be attacking so you may feel that you may feel differently about it if you're trans yourself i don't know if you are and you're listening let us know we would love to know what you think yep um i personally while i get where people are coming from i didn't get that from the movie they actually in my mind kind of take care to say hey this is not like this person who is 
evil and a monster is not really trans. He's not really an accurate representation of what this is. And they actually, they mentioned that I think a couple of times. Once for sure. Once for sure. Um, So does that exonerate the movie? I'll let the, I'll leave that to the listener. But for me, I I thought it was fine and I had no problem with it, but I just thought I should at least drop that here. Mm -hmm. Um, Manny, please. What do you think? So this was, as we're back here in 91 and, and going forward, we'll be going again backwards in time to 1990. <clears throat> this is before I became a big film fan, so I, I didn't see this in theaters. And this being known as a horror film, and at the time, back in 1991, not that it's not now, but this is a dark film. In 1991, this was really dark. Nowadays, this if this movie comes out, this is almost like par for the course. Mm-hmm. But this kind of helped bring in that type of filmmaking and that type of tone into mainstream mainstream movies. The 90s was a, a lot of dark stuff. So I didn't see this until, I would guess, maybe three or four years later, when I finally got up the nerve to watch what I thought was going to be a scary movie. Mm-hmm. And was blown away by what I'd seen. I've watched this movie probably between 20 to 30 times. And for a movie as disturbing and as dark as this, it's so rewatchable. It is a movie I can just put on and just enjoy. I agree wholeheartedly on your take about Jodie Foster. Because of the iconic performance by Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, who the AFI voted as the number one movie villain of all time. Uh, where did we where did we have Lecter? Did we did he even make the list? There's no way he didn't make the list. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of great villains who didn't make the list. I'm deaf. Yeah, I I gotta look that up uh, as I'm talking. Mm-hmm. Um, Jodie Foster's performance does tend to get overlooked because of uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, iconic performance and it's quite sad because she is exactly what you said uh, absolutely phenomenal in the role uh, as Chloe Starling let's see what the fuck 11th (laughs) 11th (laughs) yikes who picked him Kyle Mm. after two vetoes oh yeah that makes sense Lecter at 11, you guys suck. I think if you asked all of those people to make their individual lists, all of them would put Lecter higher than 11th. But because of the way the drafts work, he fell. Oh, yeah, I forgot there's two people that didn't make the list. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> the Joker and Anton Sugar. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so Hannibal Lecter at 11 is merciful. Yeah, look at... Oh, God. Anyways, that's a that's a tough one for me to look at. You guys are fucking stupid. Yeah, whatever. That game's so much fun. <laughs> um, someone else who also tends to not get the praise he should is Ted Levine. This is another iconic performance. Would you fuck me? Yeah. 
he gives a chilling performance uh, in this movie, and it's sadly overlooked by a lot of people. Even though I almost feel like more people do impersonations of him than of Hannibal Lecter. That's true, actually. I like. I mean, again, going back to the quote quotability of this movie, I feel like I still hear people saying it puts the lotion in the basket. Yes. Or it puts the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, the movie also, like you said, is expertly directed. There are some technical aspects. No need for me to discuss them here. We'll get it in when we get the technical review. Uh, this movie is worthy of all the praise that is heaped upon it. So why don't we break down the film? Let's do it. We're going to spoil Silence of the Lambs in 3, 2, 1, Go Fuck Yourself. Notable scene, Sammy. Where are you starting us off? Yeah, I, uh, I think I'm going to start right at the beginning. Um, it might seem like an odd pick. But I really like the uh, the setting of the intro of this movie of Jodie Foster doing the obstacle course. I knew you were going to pick that scene. Really? I did. <laughs> How did you know? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know why. I just really like the the setting of this. Um, I watched uh, one of the featurettes on the Blu-ray of Sounds of the Lambs, and there's is that uh, the one I gave you? Yes. Nice. Yeah, thank you for that, by the way. You're welcome. Um, Jodie Foster has a little bit about. Um, how in the novel or maybe in the original draft of the script um the first scene was a training exercise Mm -hmm. um where it looks like jodie foster kills a woman or kills a child or something like that um but then it's revealed just to be an exercise and then they go over what did you do wrong here um and she said she she hated that when she was reading the script because uh, she just doesn't like toying with the audience like that. Like, to say, hey, we were just kidding you this time, but the rest of the movie is going to be really serious. It kind of lacks a little credibility. Um, so she she brought this idea to the, to the director uh, as kind of a metaphor for uh, the struggle that she's going to endure, you know, the, the things that she's going to go through on her own in, in this film. And... Um, I like the visual of that. I like the score being introduced by Howard Shore right at the beginning of this movie. It's very creepy from her perspective. Um, And just so much of this walk through the course, through the tunnels, tells us so much that you need to know. We see her and her FBI trainee hoodie, so we know right away kind of who she is. Mm -hmm. We see that she's devoted, she's she's strong, she's fast, and she's on her own in this course, which she'll she'll be on her own for much of this movie. Much of this movie, she's in isolation. Um, And then we see her walking past many uh, other FBI trainees who are men who are much larger than her. Um, Just so much silently without any dialogue is established about the film right off the bat. who this character is, um, both on a physical and personal level, um, what the tone of the movie is through the score and through the cinematography, and uh, and what we can kind of expect. Uh, and I think it's just it's so it's so refreshing whenever you can see a scene like this that accomplishes so much with so little. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to draw attention to it. Awesome. Well done. Yeah, I don't have really much to add. You you kind of fucking nailed everything perfectly yeah, there. Cool. And as I was watching the movie, I'm like, I bet you Sam's. <laughs> I I I should write them down because I'm like, I bet you Sam's gonna I'm, pick the. Intro. I'm a sucker for a good opening scene. You, you know are. That. Yeah. I just I love to see how a film sets the tone and how it sets expectations. It's very important as far as I'm concerned. Perfect. Well, much like our Terminator Two uh, episode, 
uh, I need you to pick a film that I have down because I couldn't cut it to five. Yeah. <laughs> and sadly, that wasn't one of them. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to cheat, even though I it, it will not reduce because I still have six listed. So I'm still hoping I know you'll pick one. We'll, of we'll have overlap of at least one. 100%. Scene. So I'm going to cheat. I'm kind of combining two scenes. Even though there's no cut and it's in the same location, I did feel that these are two separate scenes. But I'm counting them as one. So this is immediately after we leave your scene and we go to Baltimore, um, the introduction of Lecter. But I'm counting her talking to uh, Chilton. Oh, interesting. All the way down until she leaves Lecter and is crying at the car. I'm counting that as one scene. I'm cheating. Okay. Don't care. <laughs> My podcast. Yeah. Our um, podcast, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow it. Go on. <laughs> Um, Chilton talking about the rules, uh, you know, don't touch the glass, don't, iconic there. Um, him flirting a little bit happens throughout the film. I love that we get her perspective on it. She is fully aware of it happening every single time. And like probably every woman in existence knows how to deal with it mm -hmm. because they've dealt with it their whole lives because we are scum. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, are, are lesbian women as disgusting as straight men when it comes to <laughs> flirting? As shameless? Yeah. I think is kind of what you're trying to get at. Yeah. I, I genuinely don't know. I'm going to say... Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. I don't know. I'll ask my sister. Yeah. I have a bisexual friend. Maybe I'll ask her too. Well, if Jordan's listening, she can pipe in on this. Maybe. Maybe I'll ask her next week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I like that she, as, as they're about to go their separate ways, she flirts back a little to ease his tension. Right, because he's he's upset that she's made him walk all the way down there, uh, only to tell him that he shouldn't come in because Lecter sees him as his nemesis. Mm -hmm. But she flirts back a little, saying, "You know, I how would I've I would have been able to enjoy your your company." Yeah, and that completely disarms him. Completely, because we are simple, stupid creatures. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a pretty girl said something nice to me. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> God, we're just ridiculous. We're, we're all dumb. We're so fucking stupid. Yeah. Um, this, of course, this whole section of this scene, mm, nicely done, <laughs> sticking to your story. Yep. Uh, does what my co-host, I knew loves. you were going to bring it up. Yeah. Loves this so much talking about the character before we meet the character. Mm -hmm. Setting His them. reputation precedes him as yeah. we're walking into this room. She walks down to see him in that iconic jail cell now the only reason that he is behind plexiglass is because jonathan demi didn't want to shoot this scene between bars and have the bars obscure either actor's face mm -hmm. it's the only reason it's done that way nice does it also look fucking cool yes yeah it has this uh this sensation almost of him being like sanitized or him being um quarantined yeah is the word that i'm looking for yeah 
but that is the reason he's in that plexiglass uh, cell instead of a regular jail cell is because Jonathan Demi didn't want to shoot through bars with these two, um, which makes me laugh. <clears throat> we uh, we meet Migs as well on the way down and on the way back. Uh, <laughs> these two, I shockingly forgot how incredible the chemistry is between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, earlier in the scene, front runner for best chemistry for 52 review. 100%. Holy shit. Okay, um, I should have actually figured this out from the featurettes that I watched, but how are they able to achieve this kind of chemistry? Like, are they even really talking to each other? Because the camera would be in between them. Yes. Kind of, right? Like, are they really talking to each other? Or are they just talking to a camera, shooting all, like, all of Jodie Foster's parts? Like, are they just shooting coverage? Yeah. Like, is Anthony Hopkins there while Jodie Foster yeah. is on camera? I have no idea. Hmm. Some actors like to do that. Like, um, famously, Jack Nicholson will has, in the past, always stayed when the camera's not on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think the quote is, I love acting. <laughs> so he is always giving his performance, even when he's not on camera, from what I've heard. Mm. Whether or not Anthony Hopkins or Jodie Foster is doing that, no idea. Right. But there is rarely any shots, rarely any shots of the two of them in this cell. Obviously, when we get further ahead, um, when they're in Memphis, um, there's lots of shots of them together. Mm-hmm. But in here, uh, it's pretty rare. Uh, they start to discuss Buffalo Bill. She's very open and honest with him, despite Jack Crawford's warning of mm-hmm. don't let Lecter inside your head. Um, he is electric on screen. This is one of the most iconic performances. And it is what made Anthony Hopkins a star. He was l- almost a nobody prior to this movie. Which is difficult to believe now. Yes. Two Oscars later. Yeah. Uh, really great back and forth between the two of them. He... <laughs> is... It was... Watch... It was... It was enjoyable to watch him rarely blink a conscious decision of course yes uh, and when he does blink it's very deliberate yeah usually it's when he's breaking eye contact or something like that or if or if jodie foster has landed a blow this is great it's weird to talk about it and dissect it this much but it's this great blink he does um when she says most serial killers keep trophies and he says i didn't she said no you ate yours and he just has this like little blink and look off to the side like one of the few blows that she really lands on him in yep. this in the scene which is really awesome um i just love that little reaction shot from him it's really good yeah cuz you could see that he's like well i didn't and he's like holding himself above all these other serial killers who he thinks are beneath him yeah and then she reminds him no you're just like them yeah and he like you can see it. He's almost a little bit embarrassed. Yeah. And it just shines through for a second. Yes. L- small little uh, little chink in the armor. It's great. Uh, and then she goes to leave. Mig throws his jizz on her. Yeah. Lecter, not happy about, uh, about that, and then offers a chance uh, for Starling to advance um, and gives her the clue to, to, to start the... Uh, 
Um, start the process, I guess. I guess I'm, to... I'm like start the research. That's not the word. Uh, start the investigation. There you go. Uh, allow her to get into the investigation. Yeah. Buffalo Bill. The ball rolling. Uh, it's a fantastic scene. So in a way, can we say that Miggs is the real hero of the story? Because if he if he doesn't if he doesn't throw that at her, you know, does uh, does uh, Hannibal Lecter call her back into the room to to give her what she wants? Miggs is the true. Miggs hero. is the real hero of the story and 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 like a real hero he had to sacrifice himself exactly a piece of himself yes yeah no well he had he well he sacrificed a, a, a piece of himself uh, as well and then, then also dies and then also dies he had to sacrifice himself <laughs> a tragic hero a tra- um, he is a tragic hero <laughs> pour one out for migs <laughs> <laughs> oh god that's terrible um well look Obviously, you're making a big thing about bending the rules to include two scenes in one. And even though I'm pretending to be upset about it, A, I've done it myself before. And B, I'm glad you did because it gives me an opportunity to talk about both things as well. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. One of the first things I've written down in any of my notes is Hannibal Lecter introduced via reputation, of course. Um, He's a psychopath. He's highly intelligent. He's ice cold. He's extremely dangerous, both physically and mentally. uh, And he ate somebody's tongue. Uh, we know all of this about him before he even makes an appearance on screen. So that's really great to walk into a room knowing that. Um, and this is something Anthony Hopkins also talked about, um, how you have all those expectations of him. It's one of the reasons he played Dr. Lecter in the way that he did as kind of a, a, a gentleman, um, somebody very posh and prim and well-groomed. Um, it's one of the reasons he decided to play him that way so that uh, it kind of plays with the audience's expectation we're expecting this beast and this is a a a cultured man who listen who likes to draw and listen to classical music um it's a bit of a um a 180 from what we expect uh the shot of him standing dead center in his cell good morning chilling (laughs) also um as if he knew she was going to be coming um and uh, I really just wanted to uh, like. There, there's the whole dialogue for this movie. I could, I could dissect this scene line by line and why each line works. It's such a fucking good dialogue. One of my favorite, like seriously, one of my favorite one on one dialogue scenes ever. Um, but there's this awesome monologue he has at the end of it, where he goes, "You know what you look like with your good bag and your cheap shoes. You look like a rube." Where he really starts to lay into her. Yep. And it's it's just so well delivered and it's so well written and it gives me fucking chills. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> what scene you got next? I got um, the lamb story. So the next scene, but or sorry, not the next scene between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, but the next or the one after that. Um, so the third scene, I guess, something like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, where she tells him the the story about uh, the lambs. Jodie Foster has a great, um, a great thousand yard stare in this scene where she's recovering, recounting this really traumatic moment in her life. Again, completely disregarding the advice that has been given to her <laughs> uh, in advance. Um, but again, there's one line by Anthony Hopkins I just want to draw attention to. It's not even the writing of it. It's just his delivery um, where he asks, uh, what is his nature? What is the nature of a serial killer? And what's the nature of Buffalo Bill? And she says, he kills. And she, he goes, no, not that he kills. It's delivery of just these two words. He covets. And the hiss that he throws on the end there, like literally making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. 
it's so good uh you know every every line has such care taken with it no wonder he he won the oscar for it um uh, yeah and then of course he uh, him recounting back to her as well the sometimes you still wake up and hear the screaming of the lambs um there is not a, a creepier delivery of that that i could imagine it's all just so good have you heard a lamb scream i haven't oh are you gonna pull it up <laughs> uh, this is gonna be upsetting <laughs> we should have had this prepped ahead of time i know and I actually i meant to uh so i apologize i'm gonna go ahead and guess it's just as terrifying as jodie foster made it sound nope I hope that comes across well in the audio. Probably not. Yeah, it's okay. Here's another one. <laughs> okay, I've seen that one before, actually. Okay, so that's not chilling at all. And upon hearing those lamb screams after having watched this movie multiple times hurts my heart because it really deflates the power of that scene if that's the sound that she heard yeah but it's also context right like we're watching it on a funny youtube video a little 10 second clip this is a, a sound that is tormenting her that is keeping her awake oh, for sure. and these lambs are about to be slaughtered yes so you know that's i think context is important it doesn't change anything about it for me yeah personally <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, shout out to the headphone listeners. Bet you like that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and reduce it. Not gonna happen. Yeah, I'll be too lazy now. I've forgotten it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, if we're if you got nothing else to add about the lamb story, uh, you can choose a new scene. This is in Memphis, right? Yeah, inside uh, mm -hmm. with the cage. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you. You covered one that I had, so now that opens up. I can talk about all the other ones. Nice. Um, this is one of the. I, th I I I wish, I wish the YouTube clips when I rewatch the Oscars, would show. The Oscar clip of the performance it, it cuts them out, sadly, because mm. I would have to assume that her telling of the, of the lamb story's got to be, her uh, for you consideration moment or the I guess yeah the Oscar the, clip. the Oscar yeah. clip yeah. it has to be, uh, she is, mesmerizing. In this scene, this is she is spectacular throughout the film, but I think this is probably her finest moment, with a close second being in the basement, mm -hmm. uh, the nonverbal acting. Um, yeah, it's great watching the two of them work together here. Uh, I also love this is the only moment that they actually have physical connection when he touches her finger. Mm -hmm. Uh, just brilliant. Uh, a great pick. Great scene. Uh, I love it. Cool. Who do you got? I'm gonna go with the. I'm gonna go with the scene that you've actually referenced a few times already, uh, and that is uh, our good friend, uh, our good friend uh, James Gunn dressing up, and then dressing down, and then dressing down. <laughs> Another iconic moment from an iconic film. The song I'd never heard of prior to this, Goodbye Horses, 
uh, now carries the reputation of this film with it. Very similar to uh, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel. I was just going to say, I was reading through a Reddit thread the other day about uh, songs that are inseparable from movies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, those were basically the two main examples that came up. Um, Miserloo as well uh, from uh, from Pulp Fiction. Yep. Um, And also, well, I mean, lots of stuff from Pulp Fiction, really. But yeah, those are some good examples. One for me, um, obviously, well, every song would predate the movie unless the song was made for the movie. Mm. Um, but for me, a song that I can no longer associate without the film um, is Tiny Dancer from mm. Almost Famous. Yeah, good one. Which I always liked that song, but now that song makes me even happier because it reminds me of that scene. Uh, Freebird Kingsman. Although Freebird has been in enough movies that it's kind of associated with a few. Like I also associate it with uh, Forrest Gump. Yeah, see, for me, like... The Kingsman's not an iconic enough movie for me to... But that scene is an iconic enough scene. No? I don't think so. Okay, fair enough. Maybe not for my generation. Let me put it that way. That felt felt big. That felt like people were talking about it. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. I'm going to test that out. Hmm. I'm going to test that out. But again, Freebird has been in enough movies that you'll probably get a bunch of different... If you ask somebody, what movie do you think of when you think of Freebird? There's probably at least a few more that I'm forgetting. Maybe Forrest Gump for me. Yeah. Jenny. Jenny. Obviously, uh, Sam said it a couple times, the I'd fuck me line. Um, this is the ultra close-up on the mouth is just really unsettling. Uh, I did learn that the ultra close-up on the pierced nipple, uh, not, a pier- not a real nipple. That was a oh. prosthetic. Interesting. Yeah, not even a person. Yep. Uh, I never made that connection, even though they show it. They show that tattoo of the incision with the blood dripping down. Mm-hmm. Never made the connection at all that it's literally what he's doing. Yeah. That's, I'm like, I am stupid. <laughs> uh, and then obviously it ends with the famous tuck. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's not a scene like the scene didn't even like, even as a young, as a teenage boy, the scene never disturbed me, but it had an effect on me. Yeah. This is, this is the kind of scene I feel like back then and today, the reaction is just what the fuck? It's not, it's not disturbing in the same way that, you know, skinning women and wearing their skin on you is disturbing oh i have a note about that but it is um it's weird <laughs> it's very weird That's yeah the best word i can use to describe the, it. like as a as a young man in my teenage years um obviously back then trans people were less out mm. uh and being in a small town i did not know well actually i was gonna say i'm like i actually don't even know any trans people i actually do just not I'm not, I don't have any close friends. I don't have, I don't have any, I, I haven't met any, I shouldn't say I haven't met. I don't have any trans people in my life that I'm close enough to actually have a discussion yeah, about, about their life yeah. um, with them, like what they've had to endure and everything like that, which, I don't know, makes me sad. I would, I would love to be able to have an open discussion with a trans person and talk about what they've had to 
go yeah. through life with. That'd be fascinating. Um, so this was one of my first experiences with that even aspect, even though they've said in the film that he is not trans. Mm-hmm. Um, even back then, I didn't... Oh, well, obviously, when I, I, when I saw it, so it came out when I was 14. Probably didn't see it until I was like 16 or 17. I, well, I'm 16 or 17. I didn't really know any cross-dressers either or transvestites because I'm a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this seeing this wasn't like I, well, I guess it was kind of eye-opening, but it, I was just like, what? And then him being a serial killer, I never, I, I can I can say this. I can understand the, like like you mentioned before, a lot of people in the queer community have issues with that with this film and its depiction of that. Mm-hmm. I get it, and I'm sorry. I can tell you, as a young man, I never made the connection of somebody who is trans being a serial killer. Yeah, apparently. So, I guess I didn't really touch on this earlier. It seems that that is a stereotype. Uh, it seems like, or maybe a stereotype is the wrong word, but that's a trope. A trope. It's in, a trope. In Hollywood. Yeah, a Hollywood trope of a uh, trans person, like it being, yeah, a trans person who is just mentally ill and unstable and, uh, you know, in this case, a serial killer and in some others. I couldn't name you another. Well, I guess um, we talked about uh, Crying Game. Mm-hmm. Crying Game, another movie we talked about with a prominent trans character. Yeah, and but that person's not mentally unstable. They weren't mentally stable like remember the like the final act of the of the crying game there's 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 some instability there isn't there you have to remind me i honestly i'm i'm kind of spitballing i was hoping you would remember i i thought there there is isn't there a scene where like uh um i think jay davidson's the actor that's correct uh jay davidson ties why can't i remember the lead's name um steven ray yeah steven ray uh Ties him to a bed, like holds him at gunpoint, kind of holds him hostage, kind of situation. Oh, isn't isn't that kind of like? Yeah, but see again, like I don't make that. See, I don't make that connection of him being trans being the reason that he does that. I know straight men and crazy women yeah. that would do that as well. Yeah, and I never, I never took that as like, oh wow, this per- this trans person must really be unstable. I mean, granted, I only watched Crying Game for the first time like this year. Yep, but I, I given the context of the movie of everything those people have been through together like i while i don't condone holding anyone tying anyone up and keeping them hostage at gunpoint i did understand the character's motivation for it it's not like yeah. it was completely out of left field yeah now I, like again us saying that it does not mean that i'm disqualifying the queer community's yeah, problems like, w- with this film or the crying game or what's the other one Shit, I had another one off the top of my head. There's another example? I can't remember it. No, it doesn't matter. I mean, regardless, I think the point's been made, like... uh, Okay, so with that, let me play devil's advocate. I'm sure there were... You were, what, 16 when this film came out? Uh, I was 14 14. when this movie movie came out. I'm sure it's not totally out of left field for somebody your age at that time, somebody who was 14, to go into this movie and come out of it thinking, wow, trans people really are crazy. 100%. It's completely within the realm of like a reasonable conclusion they could draw based on the movie, not based on reality, based on the movie. Mm -hmm. So like, I understand that side of the argument. I just, I can't, I can't imagine myself ever drawing that conclusion. Yep. And I just think it's an incorrect reading of the movie. Um, 
and once you as an author put art out into the world your interpretation or the interpretation of it is no longer up to you correct um so yeah i i, I guess it, it's a difficult question to ask if it could potentially be misconstrued is it an, is it fully unethical maybe maybe not but yeah personally i i didn't see the connection yep um your next scene my next scene i'm gonna go with the prison break uh nice. out of memphis I think uh, this is a stroke of genius. I don't know if this would actually work. There's parts of me that wants to think, like, wants to believe that somebody would have noticed the skin face mask on Hannibal. Oh, you're jumping right to the end of the escape. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to cover in there. So, yeah, you're right. I can can maybe rewind a little bit. Um, Great way that it is shot with uh, the concealed item. I think he's regurgitating it. I don't think he's concealing it in his mouth. I think he... Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I think he's regurgitating this. uh, No, he's concealing it in his mouth? Yes. The only reason I know that is there's a deleted... There's a deleted scene that I didn't watch, but I heard about in the commentary where they are scanning him with a metal detector Mm -hmm. and it beeps by his mouth and they're... the, The two guys, Pembry and I can't remember the other guy, the other officer's name that's there they're like it might be just his his fillings mm-hmm. that are that are setting it off and they're like well i'm not putting my fingers in his mouth yeah like, neither am i it's just his fillings yeah so he was storing it in his mouth got it yeah that actually makes some sense yes okay but but that's deleted, deleted. yeah in context of our scene we can't if he's really regurgitating it i have no problem with that yeah. either also just kind of cement doesn't really matter either way he's concealing this key in some way um, produces it, and uh, I love the shot of him walking towards the cell wall where he's supposed to uh, kind of give himself up for being cuffed. Um, and we see him. Con- we see him palm. Is it a key? Is it no? A- it's 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 a it's the. It's like a little lockpick. It's the thing. Fr- no. Well, it's the thing from the pen. From yeah. The ballpoint. It's pen. not a lockpick. It's just a piece of metal. Yeah. I mean, is a lockpick actually a thing? Yes. Okay. All right. I don't know anything about picking locks. <laughs> like, I didn't know if it was just like. Whatever object you use to pick a lock is a lock pick. I don't know. But. No, there actually is a lock pick. Understood. Got it. Um, but yeah, I just like love the way this is shot um, where the camera is kind of bringing the audience in on secret information that the guards don't know. It mm-hmm. heightens, heightens the uh, suspense of the scene. It's really well shot. The classical music playing. Yeah. Um, oh, him taking his sweet time after he's killed the one guard, just covered in blood. Um by the way, apparently Wardrobe wanted to have uh, him in, like, yellow for this scene, uh, but Anthony Hopkins convinced them to let him remain in white because, um, A, the blood would uh, appear a little bit better, yep. and B, it would seem a little more sanitary. Apparently, he drew on his fear of dentists for that decision, Yep, which, bang on. Um, so, yeah, um, then him standing with his... Uh, with his face pointed upwards, eyes closed, um, just basking in the feeling that he has, as well as the classical music that's playing. Did it remind you of another Jonathan Demi? Yes, I am divine. <laughs> Jonathan Demi has a thing for uh, opera, I guess, or for classical music. Yep. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, this other guard is trying to get away, um, and the the line delivery of "Ready when you are," um, and then he addresses him by his name. I can't remember it. Yeah, the line delivery of all that, just so chilling by Hopkins. Every little move is 
exactly what he should be doing. It's really good. They set up early on uh, in the introduction to Lecter. We haven't even seen him yet. Where uh, Dr. Chilton tells uh, Clarice when he was biting off the nose of that nurse that his heart rate never rose above 84, whatever the number is. Yeah. Here, we see him killing a man with a club to death, and he doesn't do it in a frenzy murder spree. It is all methodical. It's just one hit after the other. It's like he's conducting. Yeah, he's not getting he's not getting excited by it. He is not getting he's not in a murder rage. He is just killing somebody methodically. And it works perfectly with the character. Uh the I'm combining the the Lester escaping. It's all one scene. So it's another cheat, but that scene in there in the cage and then the cops and the SWAT team showing up and him getting him, him escaping with the with the face mask is all one scene. Are mm-hmm. we cool with that? Yep, sure, let's do it. Cool. Um the lead cop, Sergeant Tate, uh he is played by Daniel something. Hold on, let me quickly grab it. Uh Danny Durst. Uh Darst. Uh never seen him in anything else again. Looking at IMDb, he only he's got a, f- a couple other parts. There's something about that actor that has always drawn me to him. I don't know what it is. It might be that fucking super cool mustache he's got. Hmm. But the way he talks, the way that he exudes this confidence, the way that he takes control of the entire situation, I don't know what it is, but I've always loved that character. And when they go up to the room and they come in and he is splayed out, uh, the other officer who that's going to fucking having trouble finding the names of these people. I'm trying to help you out, but it's where is he? It is. No, that's Sheriff Perkins, Paul Krenler, Sergeant Tate. So uh, Charles Napier is Lieutenant Boyle. And so that's and Sergeant Pembry. So Boyle is the one that gets. I don't know. It it looks like it's not. He's not crucified, but he's the one that gets opened up. Yeah. Uh, and Pembry is the person whose face uh, Lecter takes. Gotcha. Um, that scene of him um, opening up Boyle. Uh, they come in and he is splayed out. It looks like his intestines are falling out of. Uh, disturbed me as mm-hmm. a as a like I said I would have seen him about sixteen years old. Uh, it was not 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 enjoyable for me. Mm-mm. Not enjoyable. Um, now nowadays this isn't the most oh, shocking thing in the world. That's t- it's super tame. Yeah, but uh, it 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 scared the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. The elevator dripping blood, and the realization the realization that Lecter is on the roof. Great. Um, there are a lot of one scene performances. I'm not sure if you'll, um, know this actor. Um, he is, uh, his name is Daniel Van Bargen. If you recall, um, Basic Instinct, he was the internal affairs officer that kept calling Michael Douglas shooter. 
Mm. He's the guy that's, he's one of the two SWAT guys that open up the elevator and tells the other guy to shoot. Nice. That's Daniel Van Bergen. Um, he's just a, a character actor I've always enjoyed. The tension is so high. The use of the score, the way that they shot this, the lighting, this is an expertly crafted action scene. And uh, I love that when like the body kind of falls out of the elevator, you still don't know that it's not Lecter. And then they cut to the ambulance and Lecter sits up. Yeah, the editing of this sequence is all is all really effective. Yeah. Um and yeah, the the reveal that it is Lecter under under a skin mask is is pretty fucking chilling, even still today, as far as I'm concerned. Um but again, as I alluded to earlier, do you think this would work? Do you think this plan works in real life? Yes. I do. Hmm. I think with the with Boyle strung up like that and mm-hmm. opened up like that, with what appears to be in a dimly lit room, the uh, Pembroke uh, still alive, they're not going to really be checking much. The hardest part for me to believe the credibility is actually um, – no, because they show it because when he's in the elevator, they actually have his face covered in bandages. Right. So in that dimly lit room, you're trying to get this officer in and out as quickly as possible because Lecter's still on the loose. Mm-hmm. So I think it is credible. And I was just talking about this with a friend of mine recently. Might have been like today or even yesterday. Um, I don't know when this started happening. But I'm going to start trying to let it go. This breaking down or this almost inability of people to have a a suspension of disbelief. Mm. I don't know when we started getting so critical of movies that we had to try to make them real started. I don't don't know when. Mm -mm. But it's kind of starting to get on my nerves a little bit. Like, let it go. Well, like in this example, or no, in general. Yeah. Like, and I'm I'm completely guilty of it. Yeah. I, I'll always like I'll sometimes I'm like, there's no way that could happen. It's a fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Just fucking let it go. Like. Yeah, I hear you. Who like who gives a shit? So what if if that's not gonna happen in real life? It's a fucking movie. Yeah, it happens with, if it's consistent within the rules of the movie it works i'm not trying to imply it no, 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 no i don't think this is what you're saying i just want to reiterate i'm not trying to imply that this is like bad if if we even concede that this is unrealistic it's not bad and it doesn't take me out of the movie as long as it's realistic within the rules of the movie it's fine like who gives yeah. a shit i agree with you it's just i i i don't know i honestly can't i don't know when it started but i've started to notice more and more people starting to pick movies apart for small stuff like this instead of actual filmmaking stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm start, it's starting to kind of get on my nerves a little bit. Anyways. Um, great scene. Yeah. Great uh, scene. Who do you got next? Lotion in the basket. Oh, wow. Okay. This scene disturbs me. 
Um, this this scene is probably the scene that scared me the most as a kid, and it actually still scares me now. A lot of times when I watch a movie, I'll always put myself into the movie. Like, what would I do if I was in that situation? And this is one of the times, many times in a movie, where I'm, I don't know how I would be able to get out of this situation. A lot of other times in horror movies, I'd be like, well, I just won't go back in the house. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to say, I'll be right back. So would you stuff. Would you get into the van to help the man load his couch? Nope. Not after watching this. Nope. Not a fucking chance. But this, um, being down in that pit, him, uh, this is after uh, the commercial where the senator is repeating her name, trying to uh, make Catherine a, a more human for Buffalo Bill so it's harder for him to kill her. You know, he it puts the lotion in the basket or else it gets the hose again. It can he continues to refer to her as an it. Yeah. So that will make it easier for him to kill it. The it's so fucking terrifying knowing knowing and thinking that sadly thousands of women have been in this place. Mm-hmm. Not in this movie. In real life. Yeah. And Ted Levine is so incredible in this scene. He so badly um they really dive in the in the commentary I watched and in a couple of the featurettes I watched, they really dive into the uh psychology of Ted Levine. The commentary on the on the movie has five people in it. So it's got Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, uh, Jonathan Demme, Ted Talley, and it has, I think his name is John Douglas, who is the head of the FBI's uh, behavioral science unit Mm. that the character Jack Crawford is based on. So he's giving real-world FBI behavioral science advice in the commentary. Yeah. It's fucking fascinating as shit. Mm. And he starts talking. They're all talking about how – James Gum isn't he isn't a transsexual he just doesn't want to be in his body mm-hmm. it's not that he wants to be a woman it's that he wants to be anybody else yes and so he has a fascination with women and so when she starts screaming him mock I, I don't want to say mocking imitating her screams because that's what he's building he's building a woman suit it's so fucking disturbing. Yeah. I'm sure you know this as well, um, but there may be people who don't. Uh, based on a real person, uh, Buffalo Bill. Manny's holding up the number three right now. Three people. My understanding, he was primarily based off of Ed Gein. G-E-I-N, I think is how you say that. Gein. Yeah, Gein. Yeah. yeah, Ed Gein. He's based off of Ed Gein. Uh, his tactics to lure one is from Ted Bundy. Yes. And then there's another uh, serial killer who had a pit. Uh, whose name I don't know, that um, John Douglas goes into detail in the commentary uh, and is more disturbing than even what's in this. Oh, boy. I'll fill you in on this. Yeah, I'd love to. So he uh, would capture women, throw them in a pit. This is the third unnamed Third guy whose name I – I wonder if I have the name here in my notes. 
Let's see. Uh, uh, production. Marth. The only other serial killers I can think nope. of are uh, John Wayne Gacy. No, and it's a, it's, some, it's someone I hadn't thought of. Oh, okay, all right. Oh, speaking of Dahmer, um, so this came out in February of '91. Uh, Dahmer was caught in the summer of '91. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So this guy, he would capture these women. He would throw them in a pit, except the pit had water in it. Hmm. not deep um and then he would electrocute one of them in the water they would die he would take that body out ground it up mix it in with dog food and then feed that to the to surviving women holy shit yeah yeah it's fucked i wonder if i have i do i do want to know if i have this one other thing here Yep, there it is. Okay, perfect. That's a note for later. That is fucked up. Um, another great moment in this scene that is just chilling is when he's drawing up the basket and Catherine sees all the scratch marks and you see the fingernails left from the yeah, other. Yeah, not fun. And she just fucking freaks out. Yep. Great acting by this, by this actress. Yep. Um, Brooke Smith, I think is her name. If I remember correctly, off the top of my head. Uh, yep, Brooke Smith. Nice. Yeah. Uh, she uh, she had she was on um, Grey's Anatomy for a while. Oh. <sighs> this uh, this scene just really disturbs me and scares me, hmm. uh, chills me. It's funny. Uh, this scene has never had a visceral impact on me. Um, like you may have seen, I looked a little surprised when you uh, when you brought the scene up. Mm-hmm. Not that it's bad, like, and I, I think it's a good pick. Um, but this has always been, like, I don't want to say a comedic scene because it's incredibly dark. But I feel like I've seen this parodied and yep. homaged, ripped oh, off so many times um, that I can't help but have a little chuckle when I hear it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. You know, like that's just. The cadence of that, how it's like almost a like a couplet, is uh, like I don't know something about the rhythm in which he says it is is so tickling to me, even though it's it's obviously chilling. Yep. And it's a very dark scene. I don't know. This the scene never had that uh, this vis- visceral impact on me that it had on you, but I totally get it. Yep. All right, what do you got? Uh, tracking Buffalo Bill through the house in the dark. Oh, the ending. Yeah. Okay. That's that's where I have next. So you, you're counting it from when the lights go out. Yeah, I mean, I could. I, realistically, I don't think that's big, it's that big of a stretch to do it from the moment she enters the house. That's where I have I, it. I from. don't think that's that big. Of that's a stretch. where I have it from. Yeah. Okay. So, um, this what makes so even the lead up to this scene. If we can just touch on that briefly, please do. I want e- to. The editing is just fantastic. Thank you. The reveal that they're not coming up to Buffalo Bill's house, but Jodie Foster's character is, is a huge reveal and a huge oh fuck moment. You're like, oh my God, she's about to enter into this evil lair and she she's completely alone and she has no idea what she's getting into. Um, and the slow reveal of all the information around her that some of which it seems like she picks up on, some of it she doesn't, um, but we do witness her put the pieces together as she's going through. Um, like, there's a great shot. We're so used to characters being centered in the frame at this point in the movie. Um, but there's a rare pan shot where the camera is moving. It's 
um, a shot on Clarice, and then we just pan to the side, and we get a butterfly painting in the shot. And she she's standing right beside it in a way that it's like parallel to her line of sight, um, so she wouldn't be able to notice it unless she turned around and looked at it. Um, but it's such a great shot because it's like, holy shit, the, the clue that she needs is right there beside her and she doesn't see it. Of course, later on in the scene, she starts to notice the, uh, I think, some butterflies. Uh, Deathhead moth. Deathhead moth. She starts to notice some flying around. And she's just looking around this place. That's an absolute shithole. And she realizes, like, mid-conversation, holy shit, this is, this is my guy. Yep. This is my guy right here. And she's trying to not lead on that she knows. It's such tense acting, such great acting by Jodie Foster. Um, and by, I'm sorry, the other actor's name is... Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Um, such great acting by the two of them. The way that he... Even the way that he drops the photos with sort of a, um, a flourish is, uh, is really... I, do, I don't want to say it's funny, but like it's quirky. It's quirky almost. He feels like a real character. He feels like a real person. A real fucked up person. Um, and unfortunately just manages to get around the corner really feels like we should be pulling this trigger but i get it um she hesitates just for a second that's enough for him to to get away um then the lights go out oh well after, nope. actually i mean not quite yet uh she goes downstairs uh to track our killer finds uh our captive um who is not helpful but understandably a little distressed <laughs> Um, and she's, uh, she's totally adhering to her FBI training. There's a scene earlier of her failing an exercise, uh, because she doesn't ch- check her danger zone. Yep. Um, danger zone. And then she, uh, is checking all of these, all these doors. She's checking all of her danger zones. How creepy are closed doors? Even creepier, but you know, you gotta do it. You can't, you can't have, uh, can't have Jame gum poking out of one of these doors you need them all closed um but yeah anyway as she's as she's doing the lord's work she comes across a bathtub with a rotting corpse in it and the lights go out considering you've seen this movie three times who do you think is in that tub the previous owner of the house perfect okay good yeah yeah i actually didn't really know mrs Um, lipman yeah I didn't really know until this time around. I was like, okay, I guess that's that's who it is. Um, yeah, the the lights going out and the the being stalked through the house in night vision is this is the closest this movie comes to being a straight up horror movie. Yep. As far as I'm concerned, this is this is my pick for scariest moment in the movie. Um, and yeah, Jodie Foster's. This is the scene I was referring to off the top. I'm sure you know um, of her nonverbal acting. Uh, where she's just fucking scared shitless. She's completely in the dark, trying to feel her way through. Um, yeah, and she's doing a, a great job. And yeah, the camera stalking her is uh, is eerie. It's really, really creepy. Yep. Uh, I remember being so happy with myself back in the back in the '90s when I watched this movie. Uh, prior to the internet. Uh, if you ever found a mistake in a movie, they were called, well, they're still called nitpicks. And I remember seeing one in the, in this very scene. I was so proud of myself for seeing it without ever having read about it before. But there's a scene when the lights go out and we're, we got the POV of uh, James Gum with the night vision goggles. And he reaches out to touch her. And you see his shadow on the back of her shirt. Mm, nice. Yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to spot a shadow. Yeah, 
which honestly is a testament to uh, a further testament that Jodie Foster's acting because she's not actually in the dark. Yeah. Um, but she she's doing a great job of making it look like she is. Yeah. It's like her like, eyes aren't focusing on anything. Yep. Yeah, they're scanning the room smoothly. Yep. Yeah. It's great. Fantastic. Uh, and then she shoots him. Yeah. Uh, the he gets a little too cocky. He plays with his food a little bit before he eats it, and it's his downfall. Yep. Um, he stalks her a little bit, reaches his hand out to her, as you said. Um, he wants to toy with her. He's he's enjoying the distress that he's putting her in. Yep. Um, then he cocks the uh, cocks the gun, and that sound is all that Clarice needs to to locate him spatially in the room. Yep. And blow him away. Yeah. Uh, one of the things. Uh. Again, I think his name is John Douglas. Uh, that he talks about in that, uh, in the commentary, is that sadly a lot, the vast majority of serial killers are only caught because they make mistakes, mm-hmm. not not because of some incredible investigation work that the FBI and the, and the police work do. Um, eventually, they make a mistake, and that's how they get caught. And he's like, he's like, that's the sad truth: is that we are just there investigating the best that we can just hoping that they make a mistake because that's how we catch them and so this scene where he makes a mistake of cocking that gun because that gun actually doesn't need to be cocked to fire uh is what costs him nice yeah good detail Mm -hmm. and that's all i have um i do have room for one more scene on mine uh I also picked six, and you picked one of mine. So, um, the, the the final phone call between uh, Doctor Lecter and Clarice. That's fair. Um, have the lambs stopped screaming? The reintroduction of the Hannibal Lecter character. Um, it's it's plain to see in hindsight that they were going to spin this movie off. Like, and we now living in the two thousand twenties in an era where. You know, 10 out of the top 10 grossing films are a sequel, a reboot, a spinoff, some variation of an existing property. Um, it's no wonder this was spun off eventually. Um, I do consider it a spinoff because Hannibal Lecter isn't the main character of this movie. Um, it was, it's no secret that Red Dragon came to be after this, but what a perfect... Well, there's another movie before Red Dragon. What was before Red Dragon? Hannibal. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I haven't seen any of the other... Hannibal Lecter movies. It's my understanding that they're kind of not worth it. <sighs> or they're less worth it than Sounds of the Lambs. Oh, they don't ap- approach Sounds of the Is Lambs. Is he at least great? Yeah. 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 Hmm. I also understand, I think they're probably even closer to horror horror. Yeah. Yeah, like they're pretty gory. I mean, it's about a cannibal. Hannibal is. Yeah. Yeah. Hannibal is. Red Dragon, I didn't like very much. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. yeah. It's a shame we feel the need to, you know, keep going back to this well, even though it seems like it was pretty well dry after the first one. But, mm-hmm. um, but regardless, all I'm trying to say is, like, what a perfect setup for a sequel at, at the end of this. Um, but it also acts as a as a strong conclusion to this movie. It's a, it's a very chilling ending with um, our main bad guy being captured and another crazy being released upon the world. It's uh it's a it's a fine ending. And of course the delivery by Anthony Hopkins, another another in a long line of famous lines 
I'm having an old friend for dinner. And the shot of Chilton. The, um, I'm just, okay, so Red Dragon is 2002. Yeah, and Hannibal's 2001. Oh, okay. So it's 10 years before the next one. Yeah, still a while for sure. Um, on Jodie Foster's end of that phone call, uh, they surprised her with having Anthony Hopkins on the other end. Mm. He was off filming his next movie already, and they got him to call her. So her shock when you see her is genuine. That's that's a pretty cool detail. Yeah. Um, just one sec. Hmm. All right, Sam, pick your favorite scene. Uh, this is actually a really easy pick for me. I am in love with the first conversation that uh, Hannibal and Clarice have. This has always been one of my favorite conversations, maybe in all of film. Uh, I think the introduction to Hannibal is so chilling. And uh, this is such an intense match between the two of them uh, that Hannibal comes out on top of. I've always been in love with it, and it's my pick right now. Nice. I'm going with Lester escaping. Lecter, sorry. Lecter <laughs> escaping. Yeah. Love that whole scene. It's tension-filled. It's fantastic. Um, that's my pick. Cool. Uh, performance review. Who you start with? Well, I think we'll start with the obvious one. Anthony Hopkins, uh, infamously, I should say, one best actor for this performance. Not infamously. Not infamously. Well, I mean, Are you he talking- famously won and infamously was nominated. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I guess what, what I'm getting at is the screen time that he has in the performance. Not usually um, an amount of time that you see from a best actor nominee slash winner. Mm-hmm. Normally, uh, f- for being on screen this little, you would be in the best supporting actor category. Mm-hmm. Now, that was my... That was my thoughts going into this movie. And part of the reason I was, well, one of the many reasons I was looking forward to reviewing this movie is like, okay, I'm going to be able to watch this and solidify my stance that this should be a Best Supporting Actor nomination. And I no longer feel that way. Yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it as we were watching. I think one of the things that probably led to his nomination in the actor category instead of Supporting Actor is that even the scenes where he is not in them, he's still largely the focus, especially in the first two-thirds of the movie. Yeah. Um, and I would add to that, he is probably the most prominent male character oh, in he the is movie. The, he is the most prominent male character. Yeah. So I think for those reasons, I really don't have a problem with him being in the actor category. Now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think <clears throat> I think they count, I've, I've heard counts of his screen time at like 16 minutes. But another podcast I was listening to today, um, they broke down, they scoff at that number because what people are counting is that the time he's on screen. Right. And the and as we established, the conversations between him and Clarice are shot in singles. Yes. Uh, they're shot in super close up. Singles. So they're not, they're not counting yeah. that. So if he's in an eight minute scene... They're counting four minutes of screen time because he's in frame for half of it. But he's in the entire scene. He's in the conversation. Yeah. So this other podcast, which, by the way, is the, the podcast is Blank Check. Mm. Um, an unofficial count, I think, of 
what they ran their watch on is that a scene that Lecter is in, as long as that scene is running. Mm-hmm. So that and there's no scenes that he's in where he leaves the room or anything. Yeah, obviously, except for the last scene. So I think they had it about thirty nine minutes, which is like totally respectable. Yes. I still think, by most measures, he still is on the short side. Well, uh, most likely, yes. Yeah, but nothing, well, nothing egregious. That might be around the same uh, amount of screen time um, that Jeffrey Rush had in Shine. True. Yeah, it was a weird one. It's a weird pick. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a get. I haven't thought about that movie since we did it. Probably. Actually, that's a lie. Every uh, I have to deal with sheet music sometimes at work, and every time somebody asks for a Rachmaninoff piece, I think of Shine. Nice. <laughs> um. Yeah. So my. I, I was going into this year, this miniseries, I was like, I can't wait to fucking toss Anthony Hopkins out of the best actor race and into the best supporting actor. After watching this movie, I no longer feel that way. Yeah, you have been throwing the term category fraud yes. out for this quite a lot. I have, and uh, I I no longer feel that way. There's a formal apology to Sir Anthony Hopkins in order here. He is a knight, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. I'm not apologizing. <laughs> Just a nod of approval. Um, everything about his performance, um, his tone, his intonation, his deliberate movement. He's so charming. Um, he's like, like I mentioned before, he rarely blinks when he's talking to Clarice. Uh, he's just absolutely, uh, I've already used the word, but he's electric on screen. We've kind of tiptoed around this point but i just want to explicitly say it his character is intentionally portrayed as being really all-knowing um so the really chilling shot i talked about of him standing dead center in the room uh, dead center in his cell rather um when he's being introduced um was another deliberate choice um the director asked him if he'd like to be drawing or if he'd like to be laying down how would you like to be uh when she enters the room and he says i want to be standing dead center because I'm expecting her because I smelled her when she came in. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the level of all knowingness that this character has, and the level of thought that Anthony Hopkins puts into his portrayal. Um, every little decision like that is premeditated. Um, you know the fact that he's able to f- uh, decipher things about her personality based on her scent um, is is amazing. And yeah, his his delivery his delivery of a lot of that dialogue and a lot of that exposition. Um, is what makes this character really come alive. I'm going to move on to Jodie Foster. Makes sense. It's a powerful performance. She wins Best Actress for it, which I'm very excited for us to have that discussion in the year-end review because this is actually a loaded category. Like you said, I believe that she gets overlooked for her role in here because Anthony Hopkins shines so bright. I love that they accentuate how small she is. You know, there's a scene in the elevator where she gets on the elevator right at the beginning Mm -hmm. um, with all the other FBI agents and she like barely comes up to their shoulder. There's the scene in the autopsy where we see uh, her POV. It's a little looking up at all the officers there and you can all see that they're looking down at her a couple of them even look even further down (laughs) yep uh it's she's so incredibly intelligent and attentive she notices things right away like i said before she 
knows how to uh, deflect um, the male gaze and the male ham ham fisted flirting, mm-hmm. but she's not cruel about it. Like one of a scene that we didn't throw in here, and I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about it. Is when she goes to see the entomologists, and the one entomologist is kind of flirting with her and she's like are you flirting with me and she's not mocking him for doing so Mm -hmm. she's deflecting a little bit and she's super sweet and adorable about it i i I just the entomologists who are playing what looks like chess with bugs yes fucking weird man (laughs) (laughs) uh it's it's just an absolutely incredible performance that is sadly a little overlooked. Yeah, I uh, I felt like I really rediscovered this performance this time around. Um, I actually don't have that much experience with Jodie Foster. I, I don't think. Oh, yeah. Um, I haven't seen. I know that she has another Oscar win. I can't remember what for. Uh, The Accused. The Accused. Do not watch it. No. No. Terrible. No. Is it dark? It is about a rape victim, hmm. and Sam. Um, they graphically show the rape in that movie. I see. Graphically. Oh, boy. It is a movie that would not get made today. Hmm. It is fucked up. It is... mm, It is rough. Okay, so not going to be watching that one. Do not watch The Accused. I have toyed with the idea of watching Taxi Driver, um, which I understand... Playing tonight at the Paramount. Yeah. <laughs> when I was watching uh, Tar, it was being advertised. Um, don't know if I'm going to be watching that anytime soon. I know that uh, Wes really likes that movie, right? Because he's a big Scorsese guy. And uh, You haven't seen Taxi Driver? I haven't seen Taxi Driver, no. I You have, actually. Because I've seen Joker. <laughs> I know you too well at this point. I know where your punchlines are going. Mm. You can't fool me. Um, yeah, I, underst- I-, I kind of understand that... Uh, taxi driver is considered in the same vein as like um, Joker or thematically has been compared to like Fight Club, for instance. So it, just, it's 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 a about, real, it's it's about a masculinity really and really good movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, and I understand it's the film debut of Jodie Foster, who plays a shockingly young prostitute. I think twelve years old. Yes, I something think so. like that. I know she's fourteen when she was filming, but I think she plays twelve year old. Yeah, so. Uh, that also sounds like just a ton of fun. Um, but yeah, I, I really don't even know. I don't have her film, her filmography pulled up. In front you haven't of me seen right Inside Man? Nope. Interesting. Uh, what else do we got here for Jodie Foster? I mean, you she... would, you would, you would be entertained by Maverick because it's about poker. Right. I remember you telling me about Maverick. Haven't seen Contact. You will. Haven't seen Panic Room. I don't know. You will. That's a, uh, that's, a, that's a David Fincher film. Carnage, Elysium. No. Uh, Elysium, no. Don't bother. Um, Elysium's by the guy that did District 9. Oh, uh, Neil Blomkamp? Blomkamp? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I. F- funny. I am actually having trouble identifying a single other movie that I've seen her in. Interesting. So this might be your first Jodie Foster film? It might be my only. Wow. Yeah. I don't see anything else. That's really cool. Wow. <laughs> That's shocking to me. Yeah. Also kind of it's, cool. it's shocking to me too. I just like, I mean, she's such a household name. Like I've obviously always known who she is and I just kind of assumed I knew her from more, but 
I guess not. All right. Well, that's fair. Anyway, um, I mean, to kind of summarize, I already talked about her performance a little bit, but um, Overlooked, I felt like I rediscovered it this time around. Um, really good, both verbal and nonverbal acting. The fact she's able to go toe-to-toe with one of the greatest performances arguably ever mm-hmm. um, and, you know, come out unscathed is a testament to her and that I should probably be watching more of her movies. Let me know. <laughs> what? Well, let me know. Don't just dive into them. Yeah, okay. Who are you going to do next? Um, we are going to go with uh, Ted Levine. Nice. Um, another one that's just uh, overlooked as well. I found myself appreciating this too. Um, it was hard for me to always take this performance seriously, and it still kind of is to an extent. Not because it's inherently silly it is a little bit i mean it's a little over the top but nothing like um you know not in a bad way just uh just it's uh, an exaggerated performance let's say a little bit um easily mockable so the fact that it has been mocked i i grew up in the 26 years following this movie um you know i've seen parodies of this in the simpsons and family guy and you know basically every animated cartoon show ever has done a silence of the lambs parody of some kind um and Buffalo Bill is kind of the easy cannon fodder. Um, so, you know, uh, this time around, I tried to look at him a little bit more seriously. And he's doing great work. Um, all of his mannerisms are all really creepy. The, the fucking tuck scene is weird and eerie. Um, it still makes me giggle a little bit because it is a little bit silly. But I like his performance and... Any uh, any silliness that I derive from it is not from the performance itself. It's from kind of my preconceived notions about it, if that makes sense. That's fair. I think he's absolutely incredible in this movie. And upon retrospect and after watching everything, I think he was robbed of a nomination. Yeah. I think it's a weak supporting actor category, and I could easily put him in over three people in there, yeah. hands down, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, so, spoiler alert for the year in review episode yeah. he could end up be, uh, making the list uh he's so creepy his performance is i think it is iconic because it because it's entered the pop culture mm-hmm. and it's been parodied and no, I'm gonna use parody. I was you said mocked. I don't. I don't think people are mocking the performance. I yeah. think that people are mocking the character. That's true. And uh, so I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna use the nomenclature of parody instead of uh, mocked. I like that. Uh, do you have anybody else? No, that's it. I do. I have one more person. Okay. I also touched on him. I don't know why. It's Danny Darst as Sergeant Tate. There is something about him in his one scene that he's there. Uh, that fucking mustache just really singles him out from everybody else in that scene. But it's his stoicism, his ability to take control of the situation, uh, how calm he remains. I just find that character to be fascinating. And I can't explain it, but Hmm. I've always loved that character. It's a one-scene character, and I just love it. Did you know that he it looks like he's taken to a career of music? Uh, he had the career of music before the film. Oh, from, interesting. From my understanding. Okay. But I don't know I don't know him. 
Yeah, I, I just Googled Danny Darst because I, I was having trouble visualizing who you were talking about. Um, I see him now. And yeah, he has uh, he has like a whole website with songs and everything. Cool. Yeah. Uh, your favorite performance? Uh, I mean, come on. It's Anthony Hopkins. It's Ted Levine. What? <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. It's Anthony Hopkins yeah. as well. All right, technical review. Where do you want to start? Uh, I'm going to go with one that I already kind of touched on a bunch, the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Uh, really unique style that I feel like I haven't seen really before or since. The ultra close-up dialogue style, really not very common, very effective for for the function in this film. Um, really makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel stared at, um, both in terms of Hannibal looking directly at you and really just any character looking at Jodie Foster. Whenever we get Jodie Foster's POV shot, we always get men um, staring at her, flirting with her, winking at her, undressing her with their eyes. Very uncomfortable spot to be in as a viewer. Um, So it's a super effective style for that reason. I like it a lot. I like that. I'm going to go... I'm going to start with one that I actually didn't pick up when I watched. I only learned about it in the commentary. Okay. That's the sound design. In the scene where she is walking down with uh, Chilton to go down to meet Lecter, as she's going farther down the stairs and into the bowels of that building, they start inserting submarine sounds to give the idea of claustrophobia and that you're going deep underground. Cool. Yeah. So I just want to highlight Sound that. designers are cool, man. Like, there's a lot of that stuff that just flies under the radar. And yeah. It's, just, it's really cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay. Where are you going next? Okay. Uh, editing is another one we touched on. Nice. But I would just like to go to here. The intercutting of uh, busting into the wrong house uh, between, um, is it Crawford is the character's name? Yeah. Yeah, Crawford going into what he thinks is Buffalo Bill's house. And then we get the reveal as Buffalo Bill walks to his door. That's actually Jodie Foster. That's a great little editing thing. Um also, just the editing of the conversations. That kind of walks hand in hand with the style that I was talking about before. Um, Jonathan Demi not afraid to linger on a reaction shot uh, a little bit longer, which I guess is a, a decision for the editor as well. Um, but yeah, I, I like all of those aspects. That really does tie in with the cinematography aspect, but worth touching on too. There's a, an editing choice they make at the beginning of the film that I love as well. Um, it's the scene change where Chilton answers the question that Starling asked Crawford. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what that question is, but I do I do remember it. Yeah. Uh, so I love that editing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, the set decoration. Oh, okay. Uh, Lecter Cell is fucking brilliant. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. That choice of the plexiglass, the brick... Is it brick? Yeah, brick. I don't know. Or are those bricks? I don't know. I can't think of it right now. It's not. It's not like red bricks, but they're like big fucking slabs. I don't know what they are. It's not. It. It's some type of. Br- I don't know what to call them. Concrete blocks, block walls. I don't know what what you call the walls that are in the basement where he is. But either way, it's fucking fantastic. The cell that he gets put in in memphis and then another incredible set the right is that just stone i'm looking at it right now it's like gray or maybe it's maybe it is concrete i don't know yeah it's concrete blocks because because you can see the yeah it's almost kind of like a brick pattern but yeah yeah, it's like concrete yeah 
Uh, I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. I, I think the set decoration in, in this movie uh, is really good. I don't – let me take a look here quickly. Who was up for set decoration? Sorry, did this get a nominee? And Art Direction. For what? Art Direction. No. Oh, wow. Lost to somebody you don't like. Somebody I don't like? Yeah, Bugsy. Ugh. Whatever. Yeah. Bugsy beat out Hook. Yeah, which which was ridiculous. Hook should win that for sure. Yeah. Um, your pick. Um, touched on it briefly. I just want to talk about the score. Uh, okay. Howard Shore is like one of my favorite composers for film. He always has such great themes. Um, I've always thought that the Lord of the Rings score is one of his best. But then the last time we reviewed Apollo thirteen, uh, or the, the last time we talked about it for uh, I think year in review episode. I was like, wow, just re-listening to that score is just so grandiose. Um, this isn't quite there on as far as that level. I do enjoy it. Um, I watched one of the featurettes uh, with him talking about scoring the film, and he talked a lot about um, trying to really put himself in Clarice's shoes. So, I mean, if you think to, um, you know, Apollo 13 and Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of just objective looking at things, a lot of big scale, and you get a lot of fanfare in those scenes, just kind of describing objectively what is being seen. He said he really tried to get in the head of Clarice because the camera is always coming from her point of view, and she's in basically all the scenes. So he really tried to um, elicit whatever emotion she's feeling. He tried to elicit that emotion in the scene. So I, I like that approach. It doesn't work for every movie. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Not one of my favorite scores from him, but it is effective. So I just wanted to draw attention to it. I'm going to finish up with um, directing. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Demi, we've already touched upon. He kind of oversees everything. His use of close-ups, um, well-documented. Uh, the performance he gets out of his actors, like he gets two... Let's see. The I'm pretty sure his next, so his back to back films, if I'm not mistaken, he has three Oscar wins. Yeah, incredible. Anthony Hopkins and uh, Jodie Foster for this, and then he gets an Oscar win from Tom Hanks for Philadelphia. So he knows how to work with actors. Um, he knows how to build tension. He, the tension that he gets building in uh, Lecter's escape scene. And in the basement, uh, expertly crafted, his uh, choice of music, you know, um, uh, Catherine singing American Girl, uh, the use of uh, shit, the fucking, the the tuck scene. Uh, Why can't I think of it? Uh, Something Horses? Goodbye Horses. Goodbye Horses, thank you. I'm like, it's not all my pretty horses, that's a movie. Uh, I always want to say Wild Horses, that's a Stones song. (laughs) (laughs) That was the other one I was thinking. Uh, it's just absolutely great um, direction from Jonathan Demi. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wins Best Director. I'll wait to discuss him whether or not he should have won when we get to our year in review. Oh, he did win Best Director. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Cool. Uh, uh, I've, I've got one more. You said nice. That, Keep that was, going. That was the last one. Um, I, I really like your pick, by the way, on Jonathan Demi. Um we often say it's an easy uh, easy one to put praise on uh, when everything is right. Just uh, just give it to the director. But yeah, the uh, you know the all the visual choices I was talking about specifically with um, 
cinematography and editing, a lot of that does come down to the director's uh, vision. So worth pointing out. Um, last one I'm surprised you don't have is the screenplay. Uh, I have it. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought I thought you said that the directing was the last one that you wanted to do. Um, screenplay is fucking excellent. It won, and uh, you know, without having the category in front of me right now, I think it's rightfully so. Um, detective novels can often feel a little bit overbloated or a little bit convoluted. Um, you know, I think there is a tendency for a good detective novel to just kind of make things as convoluted as possible without really asking whether it makes sense. Um, this is, for a detective story, this is easy to follow, but still unpredictable. Um, and I think they really strike that balance nicely. And on top of that, there's just, uh, you know, layers and layers and layers of fantastic dialogue that our, that our great actors get to uh, chew their way through. So a lot of that comes back to the script. Yeah, I like that pick. Mm -hmm. What are you picking for your favorite technical aspect? I don't know, man. There's so much that's good. So I'm going to do my cop-out answer. It's the director. When everything's good, it's the director. I'm going to have to go with that as well, I think. Yeah. I really want to try and pick something else. I think if you're... If you're putting a gun to my head and you say uh, you got to pick something other than the director, I'm going with the screenplay. Yeah, same here. Uh, all right. Favorite quotes? Lead us off. Number one. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice key ante. That was my best attempt at that. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, number two. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Uh, number three. Uh, I have the entire line written, but really it's just the first three words. No, he covets. That is his nature. And how do we begin to covet, Clarice? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer now. And the entire dialogue, really. Okay. Um, number four. The only one that I have that isn't Anthony Hopkins. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Okay. <laughs> um... I have rubs on there. It should be puts, right? No, rubs. Is it rubs? Okay. All right. It rubs the lotion on the skin or else it falls again. Um, and number five, I alluded to already as well. Uh, this is the only longer one that I have. You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's giving you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, ancient starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed. Pure West Virginia. What is your father, dear? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamp? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars. While you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the FBI. Nice. Fantastic. Here are my five. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I'm not going to do the slurping sound. I can't do it very well. <laughs> Number two is from Hannibal Lecter as well. Amputate a man's leg and he can still feel it tickling. Tell me, Mum, when your little girl is on the slab, where will it tickle you? Number three is from uh, James Gum. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Number four is from James Gum as well. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. <laughs> I'd fuck me hard. I'd yeah. fuck me so hard. That's the last one to cut. And my last one is from Dr. Frederick Chilton. 
Do not touch the glass. Do not approach the glass. You pass him nothing but soft paper, no pencils or pens, no staples or paper clips in his paper. Use a sliding food carrier, no exceptions. If he attempts to pass you anything, do not accept it. Do you understand me? Nice. What is a, your favorite quote? This is a really tough one. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the, the rant about her being a rube. I, nice. I, I just love his delivery of that. It, really it actually has one of my favorite um, line deliveries as well. It's right at the end. You run all the way to the FBI. You know who it reminds me of? It's, uh, Hans Gruber. <laughs> That's who it reminds me you of. You want a miracle? I give you the FBI. Yeah, that organization, its name just lends itself to being said slowly. What about you? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Nice. Also a good one. What was the weak link of the film? I, I really don't know. I have none. Everything is fantastic. I have none. Everything's really good. No weak link. No weak link. All right, some trivia. You ready? Yep. <clears throat> Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Dr. Hannibal Lecter and Clary Starling, Sir Anthony Hopkins' mocking of her southern accent was improvised on the spot. Foster's horrified reaction was genuine since she felt personally attacked. She later thanked Hopkins for generating such an honest reaction. When Jonathan Demme filmed the scene where Lecter and Starling first meet, Sir Anthony Hopkins said he should look directly at the camera as it panned into his line of sight. He felt Lecter should be portrayed as knowing everything. There you go. Uh, when characters are talking to Starling, they often talk directly to the camera. When she is talking to them, she is always looking slightly off camera. Director Jonathan Demme had explained that this was done so the audience would directly experience her point of view, but not theirs. Hence, encouraging the audience to more readily identify with her. When studying the character he played, Sir Anthony Hopkins noticed similar characteristics in reptiles. Reptiles only blink when they want to and do it consciously. Therefore, in the movie, Hopkins only blinks in special moments and very consciously. Hmm. During location scouting for the house in which the serial killer James Gum was living, Ted Levine was amazed to discover that the house being considered was not only in the town where he grew up, but was literally next door to the house of his high school girlfriend. Whoa, that's crazy. The production received full cooperation from the FBI as they saw it as a potential recruiting tool to hire more female agents. Hmm. Of course they did. After working with former FBI agent John Douglas for some time, here we go, this is the one I want to talk about, Scott Glenn thanked him and said how fascinating it was to have been allowed into his world. Douglas laughed and told Glenn that if he really wanted to get into his world, he should listen to an audio tape of serial killers Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris torturing raping, and murdering two teenage girls. Glenn listened to less than one minute of the tape and has since said that he feels he lost a sense of innocence in doing so and that he has never been able to forget what he heard. Holy shit. Yeah, that's tough. Martha Stewart and Anthony Hopkins dated briefly during production. Really? Following the film's release, Stewart ended the relationship because she couldn't divorce Hopkins from his performance as Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that makes sense. This is another one that I didn't realize and I loved because it coincides with the movie I watched. Like Casablanca, this movie contains a famous misquoted line. Most people quote Dr. Hannibal Lecter's good evening, Clarice, as hello, Clarice. Mm -hmm. This line did, however, appear in Hannibal, 
when Dr. Hannibal Lecter and Clarice speak on the phone for the first time, and Lecter says, hello, Clarice. This was possibly put in by the writers of the movie as an inside joke in reference to the misquoting of this movie. Misquotings are such a, a strange enigma and something that is less and less frequent in the age of the internet. Yep. With the exception of what was found in the old limousine, no dummies were used for dead victims and the photos depicting them. They were all done with real actors in realistic makeup, often while undressed and out in the open. So all those crime scene photos mm-hmm. are real people. Oh, boy. That were just staying still for those shots. Wow. Creepy as fuck. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm not sure if you knew this, but along with It Happened One Night and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this film is one of three films to win all five major Academy Award uh, major Academy Awards. Picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. It's only happened three times, and this is one of the three. Crazy. Co- coincidentally, in all three films, a character instructs another character to put or throw something in the basket. That is very weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what it takes to, to make it in the Academy. And this one I found, so this one is, I, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this, but this one is specifically in here for Wesley. Okay. The Disney animated film Zootopia is a variation of the plot of this film in which a short-statured but ferociously determined and highly clever female protagonist from a rural upbringing has big dreams and aspirations to succeed in the male-dominated field of law enforcement where she faces discrimination and intimidation by her male peers. She is assigned to investigate a missing persons case and enlist the help of a sly, charming, criminal mastermind to help solve the case. The female protagonist also has a fear of being eaten by said criminal. The criminal psychoanalyzes the female protagonist and mocks her rural background. At one point in both films, the criminal is forced to wear facial restraints to prevent him from eating others. At first, the female protagonist is not taken seriously, but later earns the respect that she deserved all along from her peers and from her criminal ally in the end. Lamb also play a key role in each film. Damn. That's actually really cool. I know. That's a really cool parallel. That was for you. That was literally for you, Wes. Yeah, awesome. All right, casting what ifs. Gene Hackman bought the rights to this film, or bought the rights to the novel. He planned to direct this movie and play either Hannibal Lecter or Jack Crawford. He withdrew after watching a clip of himself in Mississippi, Bur- Mississippi Burning, uh, which made him uneasy about taking more violent roles. Hmm. He would have been. I would have liked him as uh, Crawford. Me too. Yeah. Uh, Michael Keaton, Mickey Rourke, and Sir Kenneth Branagh were all considered for the role of Jack Crawford. Mm-hmm. Paul Verhoeven stated he was offered the project, but declined because he thought that there wouldn't be an audience for such a dark movie. A decision he later regretted. I think I've only seen. I want to say two Paul Verhoeven movies. Yeah. So uh, what is it? Basic Instinct and... Uh, Starship Troopers. And Starship Troopers, yeah. Um, very different movie, this one, than those ones. Um, especially with its attitude towards women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Harris turned down the role of Jack Crawford. Would have been excellent, of course. Yep. Uh, because he didn't find the role interesting and would have rather played Dr. Lecter. Hmm. Yeah, Crawford is not exactly the meatiest role. No. Jonathan Demme's first choice to play Dr. Hannibal Lecter is Sir Sean Connery. What? 
No. Yep. Come on. But he turned the part down. Thank God. Uh, when Ted Talley was writing the screenplay for this movie, he suggested Jodie Foster for the role of Clarice Starling. Foster had been lobbying hard for the part, but when Jonathan Demme was hired to direct, he wanted Michelle Pfeiffer instead. Mm. Pfeiffer turned it down because Orion Pictures wasn't willing to pay the $2 million for what she asked. Demme then agreed to meet Foster. He hired her after only one meeting because he said he could see her strength and determination for the part, and he felt that was perfect for Clarice. Nice. Yeah, that's what's needed. Christopher Lloyd, Dustin Hoffman, Patrick Stewart, Robert Duvall, Jack Nicholson, and Robert De Niro were all considered for the role of Dr. Lecter. I I can kind of see what they're going for. I haven't read Sounds of the Lambs, um, but if if Anthony Hopkins, uh, I think his take on the role is a little bit cleaner than what all of those guys would have been. I imagine the character is written to be a little more disheveled. Maybe. Yeah. That's my guess, anyway. And there's one last person that was up for the role mm-hmm. of Dr. Lecter. And he's our good friend. Dan Lewis? Yep. No way. Yeah. Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> good friend Dan Lewis. All right, closing credits. Would you watch this movie again? Yes, I would. Same I'd here. watch it tonight. I mean, I wouldn't watch it tonight because I'm really tired, but... <laughs> Would you recommend this movie to friends? I have and would. I have as well. In fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Mushhead has not seen this movie. Oh, really? Oh, she really should. Yeah. Uh, MVP of the film? Uh, I would love to say it's Jonathan Demme, but uh, unfortunately, Anthony Hopkins exists. Agreed. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Sam, fast becoming one of our favorite parts of the episode. Always fun. Recommend a good double feature with this film. Um, I went with a, uh, a, a similarly, I mean, we can add Zootopia to the list. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Um, but I, I went with a similarly dark as fuck story about detectives tracking a serial killer. Let's watch some seven. So I had, as always, two to pick from. Yeah. Because I always, I always pick two in case you pick the same one. Right. Which you did. So I'm going... We, with, oh, we both picked seven? We did. Oh, okay, cool. So my other one, my other one uh, is similar movie, same director, Zodiac. Oh. Oh, I thought you were saying, like, I thought you were going to go Philadelphia. The no. <laughs> same director as this one. No. Like, that's not a very similar movie. <laughs> no. Yeah. Zodiac. Nice. Yeah, good pick. What will be this film's legacy? Uh... Well, when I first watched, I, I wrote down a couple things for this one. When I first watched it, it was that it was the first horror movie to win Best Picture slash one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Um, I think the legacy is Anthony Hopkins' performance now. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's Hopkins as Lecter. Mm-hmm. Did you learn anything from this movie? Usually, I feel like I can come up with a pretty good answer for this one. This time, I couldn't. I just wrote, "Don't fuck with psychopaths." <laughs> um, I'm not even kidding. I actually did learn something from this movie. Mm. I remember distinctly thinking about this when I saw this movie. Uh, and that's not to help people with vans. And I'm not. Yeah, even, cool. I'm, okay, that's actually a great, a great thing I'm to learn. I'm not even kidding. After watching this movie, I was terrified of that. I was like, not a fucking chance. Sorry, dude. Yeah, don't, don't get into a stranger's vehicle. Nope, not a chance. Sam, your final thoughts on the silence of the lamps. Uh, we've covered this movie pretty damn thoroughly in a, in a way that we uh we kind of stopped doing for a minute there uh we've dissected this film right from top to bottom i think yeah um 
the technical aspects of it and how there really isn't a weak link in the bunch. The performances, uh, especially from Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, um, how they're world-class and how there may have even been snubs in other categories as well. Um, but really, uh, Jonathan Demi constructed his masterpiece with this one. I like Philadelphia. I think it's a good movie, but really it's nowhere close to as good as this one is, uh, top to bottom. Um, I really don't know what I can say about this movie other than what I already have, uh, which is that Anthony Hopkins cemented his place in film history with one of the one of the most iconic characters who's ever existed, one of the greatest villains who's ever existed. Um, part of it is the writing of the character. Part of it is that the screenplay really is that good. Part of it is that he put his own twist on it and uh, used his imagination to make the character his own. And film history is better off for him taking this role and for this movie existing. It's spectacular and fully deserving of all the praise that it gets. This is one of those movies that I can just kind of put on anytime and thoroughly enjoy. It's, while it is obviously dark, uh, it's incredibly entertaining. The performances from Sir Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster, and Ted Levine are, in their own ways, all of them are iconic. I think Jodie Foster, again, is a little overshadowed by uh, Hopkins' performance as Lecter, which in all honesty, is probably one of the greatest performances in Hollywood history. And then it's overshadowed by the meme ability and pop culture fanboy of Buffalo Bill. Uh, but on this viewing, it just reminded me of how powerful her performance was uh, as Clarice Starling. The movie is beautifully shot, beautifully acted. We couldn't find a weak point uh, in this movie. In fact, going off the top of my head, the only part of the movie that we even thought might not be the greatest is would somebody actually fall for the uh, face mask trick? The one, the one aspect that I'm thinking of now, again, not even it's not even bad. It's just not in the same realm as good as the other parts of the movie, which is Crawford, both the character and the performance. I, I mean, the, char- the performance isn't bad, um, and the character isn't really the focus, but feels like there was some depth there that was underrealized maybe in the book there's uh him and star him and starling have a full-on affair yeah which i did not feel was lacking in the movie i did not feel like that would have improved the film no i love that clarice doesn't have a boyfriend yeah like, it's not about it would have felt having her fall in love with somebody in this movie would have felt icky given kind of the the way that the camera is used to make us feel uncomfortable in her skin. Yep. I wouldn't have liked that. Um, this film is widely considered one of the greatest of all time, and rightfully so. It is a absolute masterclass in every aspect of filmmaking. Sam, time to give this movie a rating. What are you giving it? It's a five, and it's an easy five. I think it was a five the first time I watched it. It's a five now. Five for me. Cool. You know what that means. Sam Pantheon, baby. <laughs> it is now the 30th film in the Sam Pantheon. Some quality films in there. There is. Is one of our drafts going to be uh, yes, it Sam is. Pantheon? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Which I should probably start pretty soon before this list gets even longer. Should I participate in that no, list? No, I was okay. going to say you don't get to participate. Okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm totally fine being an observer for that. That's a, that's a great list. My heart's going to get broken. Yeah. Totally. 
Sam, what's next week? Next week, we are for real going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And not the new one, the original one. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Not the Emma Watson one. Yeah. The other one. That won my Worst Picture of the Year award. It did. 2017, right? Yeah, and rightfully so. By the way, I did look up all those uh, movies from earlier. Get Out, uh, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. All 2017. All right. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. It will increase the profile of our podcast, which we would greatly appreciate. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can follow us on Letterboxd at Manny42 and Sam Reimer. You can email us at SamMannyMoviePodcast at gmail.com. For the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast, I'm Manny Manuel. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios.